Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. Thanks for joining me. We're about to begin our ninth episode in the podcast series all about Everiste Galois. This particular episode is a little bit longer. It's our supersized episode. This is due to the fact that we're covering a specific time in history that I've happened to spend a lot of time reading, thinking about. So there's a lot of information to go through. So I want to thank you in advance for sitting through a little bit longer version of the fray than normal. Now, if you want to let me know if you like the supersize or didn't like the supersize, you can reach out to me on social media. I'm on Facebook at the Frey Podcast, and I'm also on Twitter with the same handle at the Frey Podcast. So go ahead and reach out to me there if you want to go ahead and give me some feedback on whether you like a supersized episode or not. So without any further ado, I want to thank all my longtime listeners and any new listeners that happen to jump on this particular episode, and I want to welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. I have extremely poor impulse control. But that's not quite it. When I start something, I mean, not everything, but mostly things that are unproductive and in some cases outright unhealthy, I will inevitably overindulge to the point where I can no longer function as a normal human being. I have eaten myself, for instance, into what I affectionately call a food coma, a sort of fugue state that I've achieved on more than one occasion, simply by just not stopping eating. Of course, more illicit fare has also rendered me functionally moot, as they are designed to do. But another example in my all-in approach, this one I hope is more of a positive one, is this podcast. Over this past year, if I have done anything, I have most certainly dug as deep as I wanted to on a variety of subjects. And I want to thank you all out there who are listening to me and indulging me in this endeavor to squeeze every drop out of, well, anything that happens to pop in my head. Now, I can't deny that I've loved every moment of creating these episodes. Each one of them has been an adventure for me, and I feel mostly satisfied with my final product. Though, of course, if I had a time machine, I would definitely go back and make some changes. But alas, that is the nature of this format. It is more art than science in some respects. This brings me to our current episode of our series on the life and world of Evariste Galois the extremely enigmatic French mathematician credited with establishing much of our modern mathematical world, who died due to a lover's quarrel in a duel at dawn, left to bleed out on his beloved streets of Paris at the tender age of just 20 years old. Now, you may be looking at the length of this episode and be wondering if it is actually longer than the life of the person it is supposedly covering. In fact, I would venture that some of you can probably think that this series will end up being longer than Everiste's time on Earth. All I can say is that I have extremely poor impulse control, and when it comes to this main topic of this episode, I have a lot to say about it. So as a heads up, we are going to be going deep into the subject on this episode, and so I offer you a supersized edition of The Fray. Now, up until this point, we've extensively covered the history of algebra and the equation. This is important because it is important 
to Evariste. His passion for math ran deep. Felt, I'm confident, more deeply than most of us feel for just about anything. He felt the math in his bones. He understood the inner world of mathematics probably better than anyone in his lifetime and maybe ever. But in that tantalizing statement lies the rub, the mystery, as the short life of our tasty little Frenchman was bereft of any explanation of why, especially when it comes to math. For it was only in the last four and a half years of his life that he worked in math at all. There is very little indication that he was exposed to or was working with any math any more complex than what the Sumerians were working with four and a half thousand years earlier. So how did that all come about? How did he go from a Sumerian at math, just doing basic arithmetic, to changing the world of mathematics as we know it? Well, that is what we're doing here, right? Trying to find out. And as I started this episode saying, I can become obsessed with the rabbit hole. And in turn, we have spent the first seven episodes exploring the mathematical history of algebraic equations. In order to best understand Evariste Galois, it is best to understand what is most often in his mind. And for the last part of his life, and the only part he got to live as an adult, albeit a young one, math was certainly foremost in his mind. Now, running a close second was his country, France, and the crazy political world in which Galois found himself living. Again, though he had such a small window of opportunity, he certainly made the most of it, as Galois' political life was so extreme that he would end up spending nine of his last 54 months imprisoned for threatening the king's life. And of course, there is the duel that ends his life. Though most references to this event paint a picture of love and honor turning deadly, there is no shortage of conspiracy theories and smoke around the idea that Evariste's untimely demise was in fact political in nature. For Evariste loved his country. He saw the revolution of 1789 as a great change, a new world order that eschewed the typical leadership of the day, the king and the Catholic Church. He was so passionate about his feelings that he would often wear a full Republican military uniform, complete with sword and loaded pistols, out in public, just to make sure everyone knew where he stood on the issue of Republic versus Monarchy. Now, during my initial research for this topic months ago, when I started to dig into the socio-political underpinnings of just what the hell was going on in the world of Evariste Galois, for some of you, you may have experienced something similar when you read a French novel. The Count of Monte Cristo, Madame Bovary, Les Mis, feelings like, I can't make heads or tails of this world outside of the characters. I mean, why is there still a king? And when was Napoleon? Wait, there was a revolution, but the king stayed on the throne. Then he was removed. And then they had a parliament of sorts. And then they had a dictator, then an emperor, and then a king again. I mean, what the hell? Now, I asked myself, much like the question, what was it about Galois' political beliefs that drove him to such extremes? And just like with math, my answer was, I don't know. So much like math, I've decided to take a deep dive into history of the place and the people that we call France. And I'm very happy that you are joining me as I jump down this new rabbit hole. We started last episode at the beginning with the prehistoric people of the region that would be France. And we made it as far as the people that would one day be called Gauls, the progenitors of the modern French people, coming face to face with Rome, a place and people that are forever linked in history. The events chronicled in the past episode went down early in the 4th century BC. That was when a tribe of people, most likely Celts, called Sinones, destroyed a Roman army 
and sacked the city of Rome. All of that to leave it for the sum of a thousand pounds of gold. I'm going to venture that there probably wasn't a better deal to be had in all of history. I mean, how much would you pay for control of the greatest empire the world has ever known? How much do you think Rome would be worth on the open market? Okay, now that I googled it, I got some calculations for you. In today's dollars, Rome paid Brennus and his fellow Sinons the sum of $20 million in change to beat feet. By comparison, the United States government paid the country of France in the 1800s the sum of $358 million in today's dollars for the Louisiana Purchase. The devil is in the details, of course, but even on the face of it, the Romans appear to have gotten a bargain. Once the gold was paid, Brennus and his Sinons exited stage left, or were slaughtered, if you believe the Roman propaganda, and Rome was left to pick up the pieces. The Sinons, for their part, probably left with a whole lot of disrespect for the Romans they just vanquished. We do not know for sure what they felt because no one asked them or wrote it down. Now, we are pretty sure what the Romans did at this point. Instead of folding like a sensible civilization, burdened with an empty treasury, a city burned to the ground, and a massive loss of standing on the Italian peninsula, they displayed, once again, their amazing ability to persevere and began the slow, terrible march to empire. Very much like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Rome will once again rise to prominence in Italy, and thanks to the enormous slice of humble pie served with a heaping scoop of woe by Brennus and his tribe of warriors, Rome could not stop at its traditional borders, but continue their relentless march of creating deserts and calling them peace. All in an attempt to erase the stain of the Dies Ater, the dark day, and never again be left not only defenseless, but broke as well. You could put the history of Rome after this first altercation with the people that will be Gauls as an unceasing effort to fill their treasury and restore their military honor. I mean, if they hadn't had their ass handed to them by Brennus, would they have developed this insatiable behavior? Hard to say. What we can say is that as the ashes of Rome cooled, the astonishing willpower of the Roman Empire was forged. The other thing we know for sure, they never, ever forgave the Gauls. Now, we do not know in detail what was going on with the people that would be called Gauls after the sacking of Rome, but in general, we have a good idea of what they were doing. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the 5th and 4th century was a time of Celtic conquest. These Celts were one of the three major groups of people in Gaul. The others being, as far as we know, the original inhabitants, the Ligurians, and their neighbors to the south, the Iberians. Now, the Celts came from the Netherlands and Denmark proto-Vikings, washing up on the lands of Gaul, Germany, Spain, England, Italy, as far east as Asia Minor, like a tidal wave for over a century. But like any wave, it will eventually recede and be pulled back into the sea. And around the time that Brennus had Rome by the testicles, the Celtic conquest was beginning to ebb. After establishing cultures as far east as Turkey, the Celts ended up settling mostly in what is now called France, mingling with the Iberians and Ligurians and creating a fully functioning feudal culture that would be the rival of anything that we would consider medieval, which is an era that is still a thousand years off at this point. This mishmash of people and cultures would excel at living a sustainable, productive life without any help from their autocratic neighbors to the south in Rome. 
If one was looking to answer the question of why the tribes of soon-to-be-called Gaul didn't just take down all of Italy at this point, the answer is probably because the Celts, Ligurians, and Iberians were living the good life. Over the course of the next couple of centuries, while Rome was licking its wounds, the tribes north of Italy would begin to become precisely that, large tribes that would begin to define themselves more by where they currently lived and made a living versus where their ethnicity originated from. This is the moment that we start to get the people, places, and cultures that to this very day we call France. Places like Paris, Marseille, Burgundy, and countless other landmarks, major cultural centers of the French world, would come into being in and around this time. These tribes would claim parts of Gaul, and like the families in Game of Thrones, they would be known for their environment. They were seafaring tribes, farming tribes, livestock tribes, pottery and enameling tribes, all of them running independently of each other and in most cases running quite well. There are the usual handful of major tribes, akin to the Game of Thrones again, that were considered the most powerful throughout this time and dominated much of the culture in the region. They went by names like the Biturges, who lorded over central Gaul, the Sequani, who occupied the eastern edge of what would one day be France, and Adui, who inhabited what is now modern-day Burgundy. Other notable tribes are the Parisi, who did indeed live on the island that the city would one day be established on. The Remi, seen as the most aristocratic of tribes, and of course they lived in the Champagne area of modern France. All in all, there are about 75 major to mid-major tribes and hundreds of smaller ones. I like to think of them a lot like college athletics, like NCAA stuff football and basketball, where there are multiple divisions based on factors such as size of the school, resources, etc. Now, as an example, as I was preparing for this episode, I was rereading Caesar's commentaries and decided to record each tribe that he mentions. After a hundred or so pages, I had stopped counting at 138 tribal names. There were a lot of them, and they are the DNA of modern France. Now, our old buddy, the French historian Franz Funk Brentano, states that these tribes, or states as he chooses to call them, quote, left such an indelible mark on the soil of France that centuries have not been able to efface it. They gave to the country those internal divisions adapted to the configuration or the nature of the soil. They presented her with her checkerboard of towns and boroughs, her character over 2,000 years standing, unquote. Now, if you're starting to visualize a world that looks like a Monet painting full of pastoral beauty and simple living, well, you're not alone. It certainly seems like an idyllic life full of simple pleasures and tasks that were carried on generation to generation, all without the benefit of anything that would be called modernity. Another French historian, a guy with extremely robust sideburns and equally robust name, Numa Denis Fustel Coulange, puts it poetically, quote, a sort of existence that lives in the memories and affectations of the people, unquote. Lost mostly to history, the accomplishments of the people of this time of Gaul are pretty impressive. They could obviously farm and probably were the ones that showed the Romans how to properly care for the soil and get the most out of a harvest. Roman historian Pliny the Elder noted after visiting a Gallic farm, quote, they used for the reaping of corn an apparatus composed of a trough with dented edges mounted on two wheels and drawn by a team of horses, arranged in such a way that the ears of corn cut off by the teeth fall into the trough, unquote. The early Gauls 
would also invent the coulter plow. That's one with the big blade in the ground. And as well, they created the giant scythe and many, many versions of wheeled carts and wagons. They were also excellent in the area of animal husbandry as well, known for domesticating the wild pig into the bacon we enjoy so much today. But this seems to be something out of necessity more than desire, as the wild pigs of France, and in turn the domesticated ones, were something that most people didn't want to deal with. Check out what Roman historian Strabo had to say about the pigs of Gaul. Quote, Their pigs, larger, stronger, and swifter than those of any other countries, wandered loose in the fields. They were as formidable as wolves. Unquote. And that was after domestication. Also, pigs as wolves gives a whole new slant on the story of the three little pigs. Moving on, stained glass was invented in Gaul, and in the area that is known today as Flanders, it became the world center for making pottery, and specifically enameled pottery, which the Romans just couldn't get enough of. They went crazy over it. Pliny the Elder also gives them credit for coming up with soap, who he says was invented by, quote, the shiny-haired Gaul, unquote. Also, it appears that pants were invented by the early Gauls. Now, most importantly for many of us, the Gauls also debuted three other heretofore unknown must-haves for us in our world, namely beds, white bread, and beer. Now, the Romans loved beds and white bread, but wasn't too sure about this new type of wine. As this ode to light-colored barley-based ale of the Gauls attests to, as it was written by Roman Emperor Julian, not Julius Caesar, just a guy maybe 100, and, 100 or 200 years later. But nonetheless, it's a great little ditty. He says, quote, On wine made from barley, who art thou? Whence thou'st thou come? A new Bacchus? I know thee not. I swear it by Bacchus, the true Bacchus. I know by this name only the son of Jupiter. His scent is the scent of nectar. As for thee, thy smell is that of a he-goat. For want of grapes, the Gauls have made theirs from corn. Well, we might as call it the wine of Ceres. Unquote. Ooh, that's a sick burn, Roman. Throughout our history, most of these contributions by early Gauls were all but ignored due to the shiny bright thing that was Rome. And it's hard to escape the vortex of the Roman information black hole. Franz Funkenstein appears to have had enough of all that Roman centricness. Quote, the Gauls have a greater influence on the Latins than the Latins had over them. They gave the Romans many of the essential elements of life, dress, agricultural implements, bedding, and coach building. The truth is, and it cannot be too often, too loudly, and too emphatically repeated, the truth is that the French civilization, modern civilization, is essentially a Gallic civilization, born from the fusion of the two elements of Celt and Ligurian, whom the latter was responsible for the greater part. Unquote. Well, no shit. You, you give a culture some pants, a plow, a bed, some bread, and a wagon, and you got the modern world. Thanks, Funky Town. Now, in all seriousness, the life of the early Gauls did indeed seem to be quite idyllic. In my mind, I see it as a sort of Game of Thrones, as I've mentioned, but it sort of meets the hobbits and their shire. Now, one of the reasons for this is literally the infrastructure of how these people lived. Now, for the most part, the early Gauls lived in small villages, you know, 50 to 75 families, 
where they made a life for themselves off the land. Now, while they were great farmers, they were not master builders. Their homes were yurt-like structures, circular, often with no windows, thatched roofs with an oracular at the center of the roof, allowing for some of the smoke to escape. The Romans would call these hovels beehives. Now, the average Gaul liked to decorate his beehive with precious metals and stones. They were also were proud of their martial accomplishments as trophies such as severed heads were hung around the home to attest to the owner's skill at defeating his enemies. Now, it is safe to say that mud and blood played a major part in the aesthetic of the general Gallic home. So much so that Greeks would remark that in their opinion, there was nothing more hideous than a Gallic town. The fertile valleys, dark forests, and rugged coastline of Gaul were filled with these types of villages, every handful or so belonging to a particular group or clan, and on up the chain until the people of Gaul are divided into large mega-tribes that constitute hundreds of thousands of people each. The socio-political life of early Gaul could be best described as proto-feudalism. This means that it does resemble in some ways the feudal system of the Middle Ages, which will happen again in about a thousand years or so. Think again of Game of Thrones, but instead of Lannisters and Starks, you get Remy and Parisi. The only big difference between Westeros and early Gaul is that there's never an overarching leader over all of Gaul. There was not a king of Gaul, let alone a throne to fight over. The power structure ended at that tribal level. The head of that tribe, sometimes called a vergebret, sometimes lord, sometimes king, sometimes father, held, in theory, ultimate sway and is where the tribal rule emanated from. Now, these guys didn't live in measly little villages full of mud and blood. No, they wanted to show off, to strut a little. So they made sure that they lived in great big villages, practically brimming with mud and blood. What the Greeks were trying to tell us is that the Gauls just didn't do cities. Not in any way that would resemble what someone living on the Mediterranean might call urban. There was a certain consistency to the civic plan of the Gauls. It was just not a very tight plan to begin with. The same could be said about the politics of the day. While most of Gaul followed the same basic blueprint of how they deal with one another, put best by the Roman senator Cato. The Gauls, he said, quote, have two ruling passions, talking and fighting, unquote, which they seem to do in abundance. Now, as much as I painted the picture of these tribes being ruled with an iron fist by one guy, it is important to remember the sheer volume of subjects said ruler would have dominion over. And considering the relatively flat structure between the haves and the have-nots of Gaul, most of the men in charge simply didn't have the political capital to command any sort of real affinity from his subjects. As an example, one leader of a tribe called the Eubronies, I guess they're the precursor to the Jabronis, anyway, the people living in that area that is now the southern Netherlands, a guy named Amberorix, told the Roman Senate at one point, quote, the mob has as much power over me as I over them, unquote. That is because regardless of a leader's standing, in Gaul, each male of the tribe had a say in the tribe's business, again, at least in theory. And in some tribes, they would actually take this to heart and have weeks-long deliberations concerning tribal business, giving each man a chance to have a say. Hence Cato's observation that these guys like to talk. Now, if we take a quick tally of what we have on the table so far, let's see. We got some beer, we have some alpha males, and we have an overabundance of talking. 
it is fair to say that the fighting, so much beloved by the Gauls, was not too far behind. Now, the big distinction between the fighting that was going down in the last episode when the Celts were burning Rome to the ground and the fighting that was happening in this proto-feudal Gaul was that it was not organized or in any way designed for conquest or pitched battle. Which was not a big deal if one Gallic tribe was fighting another. They didn't have a need for large-scale warfare as it was challenging to gather up anyone in a large scale as they lived so disparately in their little villages. However, this lack of an organized military philosophy would become evident when the Romans and the Gauls clashed. Now, over these three centuries or so of sort of bucolic existence, since the sacking of Rome and the conquering of Gaul, there will be a couple major battles fought between an undisciplined mob of Gauls and a properly trained and experienced Roman army. Both of these altercations, one taking place in 226 BC, called the Battle of Telamon, and the other occurring about a century later in 122 BC, called the Battle, well, I couldn't actually find the name of it, so we'll just call it the Battle of 122. In each of these, the Gauls were thoroughly stomped on by the more disciplined Romans. In each case, the Gauls used the same tactics that Brennus and the Sinones had used centuries earlier, including fighting literally balls out and just charging madly at the Roman line, arriving out of breath and fat for the slaughter under the steady death march of the Roman legion. It is interesting to note that in both of these battles, Rome was the aggressor. The early one, the one fought in 226 BC, was a battle that Rome brought in clearing out all the Celts they could from northern Italy. Call this, let's get rid of Brennus. Let's not let Brennus ever happen again sort of battle. Now, likewise, in the Battle of 122, Romans wiped out all the Gauls in the area we call Provence, so that southern France area. It's the reason why it's called that today. That's what the Romans called it after they conquered it, the province. That's it. No other name needed, as it was Rome's first. Even after accumulating dozens of other provinces in its history, the province would forever be province, even to this day. What the Romans were trying to do here was carve out some space for themselves. It had taken them 150 years or so to climb out of the hole that Brennus had left them back in 390 BC. The Battle of Telamon was just the start of Rome's desire to put as much space between them and most of Gaul. Now, in addition to the province, Rome also officially recognized two more areas of Gaul after these battles. They are called Cisalpine Gaul. It's basically the area of northern Italy up to and including the Alps and the land just on the other side of the Alps, which the Romans called Transalpine Gaul. With these people, these tribes, they were friendly and traded with them. It is in some of these places that our friend Capio, you know, with all that gold that he had, started many of his towns in order to hide that gold of Tolosa that his dad had stolen. We talked about that in last episode. And that is where we find ourselves right now. A country that is not a country. A people that have a great life, so great that they are not prepared to keep someone from taking it. They are too busy bitching and fighting amongst themselves, arguing over every little thing. And that is exactly what happens time and time again in the tribal world of Gallic politics. Infighting and internal strife undermine any semblance of a unified Gaul. I'll just state it right here. There is no such thing as a unified Gaul, or even a Gaul at this point. But that is about to change. The agent of this change is someone 
who will forever change the history of Gaul and the entire Western world. A man who Franz Funk Brentano describes as, quote, a young man belonging to a patrician family in Rome, so illustrious that it claimed to have sprung from the loins, if not of Jupiter, at least of Venus. A young man who was hardly known in Rome except for a life of gallantry, extravagant elegance, tasteful luxury, and wild prodigality. He was immensely clever, probably the cleverest man who has ever lived, and equally ambitious, vaguely aspiring to the highest destiny, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Gaius Julius Caesar. His commentaries, a series of reports and, well, commentaries on his annihilation of the Gauls over the course of eight years or so in the 50s BC, are the most comprehensive and cited sources for knowledge of the Gauls, their lifestyle, their religion, their families and friendships, their political life and struggles, and in particularly dry, Caesarian style, their weaknesses and inevitable downfall. Now, Dan Carlin, who, if you have listened to other episodes in the past of mine, I've given much credit to as having the best podcast in the business, he covers this exact time frame and character in an excellent episode of Hardcore History entitled the Celtic Holocaust. It is very much worth your time to give it a listen. Now, I wanted to give him a mention for the reason of focusing on the word Holocaust. Dan chooses to use this in his title, and it's not an exaggeration. Julius Caesar is responsible for the deaths of over one million Gauls. He is, by any modern standard, an abject monster driven to horrific extremes by a culture that defines success at all costs. But what makes Caesar fascinating, at least to me, is that, well, it's complicated. Julius Caesar just had such a fascinating life that history and people who love history are forever connected to him in one way or another. Now, I have lived with this man in my head for a better part of 30 years. I was introduced to Rome and their world by my dad. He's a history teacher who passed his fascination with this ancient culture to me. Like so many others over the past 2,000 years, which roughly 82 generations of humanity, one man has cast a shadow over it all. It is hard to overstate the sheer amount of wacko shit Caesar was involved in. Caesar was born in the heart of Rome, far from the gated communities of his political contemporaries. The family had little money and owned an apartment building in which the family occupied the ground floor. Now, Caesar barely knew his father, also named Julius Caesar, by the way, who eventually died in battle, only having seen his son for a few weeks in total over his almost 16 years of life. Now that is when Caesar became head of his household, the pater familius. Now Caesar found himself with a mother, two sisters, and was about to have a wife to support, and he had just turned 16. His prospects were not terribly bright, despite his august family name. Now the young Gaius Julius found himself at a crossroads. Up until this point in his short life, he had already garnered a fair share of notoriety for his giant-ass brain. I mean, Caesar was a child prodigy of the first order, and his talents and abilities were the talk of the city, and especially of the common man in Rome. It was these very streets that Caesar, where he was born, where he began the one love affair of his life that would stay true to him throughout his life, and that was the love of the people of Rome. They truly loved him, and he definitely did his best to at least appear to love them right back. Standing at the crossroads of a decision, on one hand, there is the impossible future of Julius Caesar. There is the impossible future of Julius Caesar. On the other hand, 
is his responsibilities as paterfamilias. And it is at this junction when we get a chance to ask a good what if, as in, what if there was no Julius Caesar? At this point, as just a teenager, Caesar was about to choose a path that would lead him down the road to complete anonymity, lost completely to history. If events hadn't conspired to impose some dramatic changes on the world, then we would possibly have never heard of Gaius Julius Caesar. So what if there hadn't been a Caesar? Now, that's a question that has been speculated on since his death in 44 BC. Now, back then, after decades of civil war of one sort of another, Rome found itself a headless monster in need of a brain. Now, remember, they assassinated Caesar. So in the void created by the lack of Caesar, they decided to fill that void by coronating the Caesars in the form of Augustus and all subsequent emperors of Rome, not to mention kings and despots throughout history, adopted the term Caesar or Tsar or Kaiser or some derivation denoting divination. So what would there have been an imperial Rome at all without the man most responsible for creating the idea of an empire? It is at least worth pondering that idea that things would be markedly different without Julius Caesar. For certain, there would be war, strife, and perhaps the collapse of Rome itself. But if history was any guide, it is more likely that Rome would have persevered through the crises that engulfed it in the time of Caesar and stayed an oligarchy, masquerading as a republic. But of course, Julius Caesar changed all that. Now, the reason we get to ask this particular type of what if is because at the tender age of 16, already widely known as a child prodigy in multiple disciplines, including the arts of war and horsemanship, Caesar, faced with the responsibility of his family's financial insecurities, decided the best way forward was to be a provider he needed to be. And to do that, he decided to join the state religion of Rome and become a priest. Now, this seems a very familiar story to many of us. History is littered with sons and daughters of families in financial straits, trading in their futures for the known security of the priestly class. It was extremely uncommon for someone of Caesar's age, however, to become a full-fledged priest of Jupiter, what the Romans called the Flamen Dialis. Now, in all, there were about 15 total men in all of Rome that were part of the Flamen Dialis. And they were the gatekeepers of the mightiest god in the Roman pantheon, Jupiter. Now, this position came with many honors, one of which was a seat in the Senate without having to meet the age or the income requirements to be able to sit in on the most exclusive club in the world. It is one of those instances when you have to choose your own adventure. Did Caesar become a flamen dialis to provide for his family or did he become a priest of Jupiter in order to gain early access to the one place he felt he truly belonged. Now, it may be easy to look at Caesar in retrospect and scoff at him choosing a pastoral life of a priest, but that's exactly what he did. He even was about to get married to a plebeian girl, or at least engaged to one, a, just an average non-patrician from Pisa named Cossida. They had coins minted with their profiles on each side, with Cossida's picture labeled Uxor Caesaris, which is wife of Caesar. This certainly jives with the idea that he was okay with settling down to a life of a rank-and-file Roman. On the other hand, Cossida's family was very wealthy, and the money certainly would have been welcome, not only for his family, but for a burgeoning political career as well. 
The one problem with thinking that Caesar was only in it for the glory and what he could get out of the situation was that the office of the Flamen Dialis was a lifetime appointment. He could never hold any other political office while he held the priesthood. So unless he had a plan for getting him out of his role as priest of Jupiter, at the age of 16, Julius Caesar's political life was over before it had even gotten a chance to start. The world may not have ever had a Caesar if things had stayed this way. And up until this time frame, in the late 80s BC, for hundreds of years in Rome, they had done exactly that, stayed the same. But fate and luck, which is something that Caesar felt very strongly about, was not content with things maintaining their course. It was not content with a world that didn't have a Julius Caesar in it, so it intervened to change the course of history. Young Caesar's world, while destitute financially, was well-connected politically. He had familial connections to the two towering men of the age, the champion of the populares, the popular party, Gaius Marius, and the most notable noble, the patrician, you know, the, the senators, if you will, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Now, these two men literally fought for the soul of Rome. I mean, did it belong to the patricians, the senators, the oligarchs, or did it belong to all the people of Rome? This is a tale as old as time, the haves and the have-nots, the nobles represented by Sulla, who lorded over the rabble, knowing and doing what is best for Rome, in their minds, of course, filling their fat pockets with more is what the average Roman thought. Meanwhile, the populares, the men of the people, promised a better life for all through wealth redistribution, knowing that the average Roman could think and act as well as any senator could. Of course, the enemies of the populares would scoff at all this largesse to the masses talk, condemning it as empty promises, used to vault one's political career on the backs of the people through deception. So, not much different than what we see today in many parts of the world. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Gaius Marius was married to Caesar's aunt, Julia. And Lucius Sulla was not only married to Caesar's sister, also named Julia, but went by Julilla. There's an extra L in there, which makes it very hard to say, but was known to be good friends with Caesar's mom, Aurelia. These men were more than just senators. Marius was called the first man in Rome, a title bestowed to the Roman who, though equal to all other Romans, and we wouldn't want to give off a whiff of old royal aspirations or anything, though equal to all, the first man was the best of them. Marius was on paper certainly that, having achieved the consulship, the highest office in Rome, no less than seven times, a number that was by far the record. He was to the Roman military and political scene what Tom Brady is to quarterbacking a football team. All they do is win. Like Tom Brady, he was an upstart, a person no one had given much thought to. As it turns out, he was a once-in-a-generation leader of men. Gaius Marius was a military genius whose victories quickly piled up, as did his popularity and his bank account. Now, the one thing that Marius lacked, for he had the money and he had the will of the people, he just didn't have patrician political clout. He was barely Roman. Born in the countryside from a town whose historical allegiance was not to Rome, but to Rome's ancient enemy, another Italian tribe, the Samnites, whom Rome warred with and eventually, with much effort, subjugated in the 4th century BC. The town that Marius was from was called Latium. His victories in the field and the wealth he had amassed 
had risen his star high in the Roman sky, but he lacked any standing in the world of the nobles, who for their part held great disdain for this novos homo, or new man. But that is about to change. Returning from another successful military campaign, Marius, once again back in Rome, meets with an august family whose name echoes through the ages of the Roman world, a family who could trace its lineage all the way back to the goddess Venus, and when you could claim a god or goddess in your family tree, that was, for that time, some serious cachet. This family, while being one of the greatest families of Rome, was nevertheless abjectly poor. Marius was rich, so the grandfather of Julius Caesar offered one of his daughters, Julia, in marriage to this wealthy and ambitious new man. It is through this relationship Marius and Julia would stay married for the entirety of the man's life, which is a long time from now, another 30 or 40 years, that a 16-year-old Julius Caesar would get a chance to become a priest of Jupiter at such an uncommonly young age. So Julius Caesar was about to become Rome's youngest flamen dialis, thanks in large part to his uncle Gaius Marius, which I would be remiss not to bring up some of the peculiarities of the office of Flamen Dialis. As I mentioned a bit ago, it was a role that did have its perks. Access to money, access to power, and in some ways influence were all made available, or would be soon, to the teenage Caesar. But the role did have its setbacks. Now check out some of the limitations placed on a person once he became a priest of Jupiter. It was unlawful for him to be out of Rome for a single night. He was forbidden to sleep out of his own bed for three nights consecutively. He could not mount or even touch a horse. He couldn't touch any iron or look at an army. He might not be elected to any office, including the councilship. The Flamen Dialis was required to wear certain unusual garments, such as the apex, a pointy-tipped hat, and the laena, a heavy wool cloak he was not allowed to swear an oath or to wear a ring, nor to strip himself naked in the open air, nor to go out without his proper headdress, nor to have a knot in any part of his attire, nor to walk along a path over canopied by vines. He might not touch flour, nor leaven, nor leavened bread. He might not touch a dead body, nor enter a burial place, but he was allowed to attend a funeral. He was forbidden either to touch or to name a dog, a she-goat, ivy, beans, there's those beans again, or raw flesh. None but a free man might cut his hair, the clippings of which, together with the parings of his nails, were buried beneath a Felix arbor. No one might sleep in his bed, the legs of which were smeared with fine clay. It was unlawful to place a box containing sacrificial cakes in contact with the bed. He was not allowed to be present at a table without food, so that he never appeared wanting. Now that last one is great. Who wouldn't want some food placed in front of you every time you sit down? Now for some reason, it was listed as a restriction, but it seems like a pretty good perk to me. Now Uncle Marius pulled some strings, as I said, and a 16-year-old Julius Caesar was rocking his apex all over town. I get that scene from Saturday Night Fever in my head him just walking down the street with his apex worn sideways and his big old wool robe worn loose, chatting and charming up the neighborhood. Now, 
Before he could do that, there was one more thing he had to deal with before becoming a full-fledged member of the cult of Jupiter. Upon receiving his position of Flamendialis, Caesar was immediately faced with the obstacle of his wife. He couldn't accept the priesthood if he was married to a plebeian, a non-patrician. So he had to call off the wedding to Cossida of Pisa and find a more suitable patrician bride for a priest of Jupiter. Caesar ended up being paired with the daughter of one of Gaius Marius's most trusted allies, a guy named Lucius Cornelius Cinna. They were both leaders of the populares in Rome and were very much at odds with the nobles, led by the similarly named but very much different guy named Lucius Cornelius Sulla. It can get pretty confusing with these Roman names, and even though Cinna and Sulla sound like they are related, they are not. For Caesar, even if he wasn't trying to, accepting a populare as a wife would be a life-changing and indeed a life-threatening choice that would change the course of Western history. For this was a time when the very foundations of the Roman Republic were shifting. After over 400 years of Republican rule, the size, wealth, and power of Rome was too much for the existing governance to maintain. The people, represented by populares like Marius and Cinna, were involved in a life-and-death struggle with the nobles like Sulla and his fellow senators for the soul of this burgeoning empire. Then Marius died. This is really bad news for the populares in the city, for politics in that day was not about a peaceful transfer of power. It was all about wiping out your rivals, literally slaughtering them in the streets. After Marius died and Sulla kicked the shit out of Marius' son, he proclaimed himself dictator for as long as it took to get things back in their proper order. Which, to Sulla, meant, first and foremost, neutering the political power of the people and strengthening the grip of the Senate and nobles over the city of Rome. He also killed or had killed a lot of people. There were plenty of enemies to pick from. The remaining populares, who had started to call themselves the Marians, who had fought against Sulla and his troops in the streets of Rome. And yes, you heard that right. Soldiers, Roman soldiers, were in the streets of Rome. A standing army entered Rome before Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon decades later. He's famous for doing that, sort of betraying his oath. But where do you think he got his idea for this justification for crossing the Rubicon and bringing troops into Rome? By watching Sulla, a noble, do it first. A 16-year-old Caesar watched all of this happening and is not too much a stretch to connect his actions later in his life to what he was exposed to while he was a teenage priest of Jupiter. Now, during the tyranny of Sulla, thousands of people were put to death and their severed heads decorated the forum, the city's center of commerce, politics, and entertainment. These heads represented the head honchos of the populares, as well as any other wealthy Roman who may have just a scant knowledge of politics, but were somehow tied to the enemies of Sulla and the nobles. There seemed to be a direct correlation between the amount of money someone had and how quickly their name would be added to the list of the condemned. At this point in its history, Rome was almost broke, and Sulla used his dictatorship to fill the coffers of Rome with the blood money of his perceived rivals. This is the situation that young Caesar would find himself. One of his political benefactors, Gaius Marius, his uncle, was dead, and now another powerful family member, also an uncle by marriage, Lucius Sulla, was in charge and was working day and night to tear down the world 
that Gaius Marius and his fellow populares had created. One day, Caesar woke up to find that Sulla had ordered his name to be added to the list of the condemned. This was surprising as it made little sense financially. The Caesars were destitute. The charge that was levied against Caesar was not for money, but for insubordination. Turns out that Sulla wanted Caesar to divorce his new wife, Cornelia. This was because she was the daughter of a major political rival, Cinna. Caesar said no. Sulla said die. Caesar said eat a dick. Using his dictatorial powers, he then, Sulla, stripped Caesar of his priestly post. And with that, Caesar was freed from his political purgatory. So long, Apex. He can finally ride a horse, touch iron, and do all those other crazy things. And you got to give young Caesar some credit. I mean, I don't know how many 16-year-old boys you know, but a 16-year-old Caesar had this discussion allegedly face-to-face and not through letters or other machinations. It took place in the forum around the thousands of decaying heads, flies buzzing everywhere, crows feasting. It would take some serious stones to stand up to the man who created that horror show, knowing they had plans to put your head amongst the others in the crow buffet line. After diplomacy failed, Julius Caesar became, for the first time, but certainly not the last, officially proclaimed an enemy of Rome. But at least he was free from being a priest for the rest of his life. Now at this point, Aurelia, Caesar's mother, steps in and forces a stalemate, a stay of execution, allowing her son to flee the city and go abroad to seek the safety of distance. It worked, but whatever transpired between Sulla and Aurelia remains a mystery, other than the fact that they were never seen together on friendly terms. The once strong relationship had vanished altogether. Julius Caesar evaded the death squads of Rome and was quickly put in harm's way in the military as he fought and earned accolades, such as the civic crown, for bravery in the east in Asia Minor. This was around 82 BC at this point. Now, once Sulla died, a couple years later in 79 BC, Caesar returned home to Rome, a 20-year-old war hero who was ready for battle in another forum. He wanted to make his mark in the city, so he went to work right away as a lawyer, prosecuting pro-Sullans and establishing his political bona fides as a card-carrying Marian, a champion of the people, a populare. This made all the sense in the world as Caesar was still poor, but he was beginning to become extremely popular. Everything he had tried, he had not only succeeded at, but he had excelled. I mean, did you hear about his bravery on the field of battle? Did you hear his beautiful oration at Polybius's trial? Do you see the way he wears his toga? That's right. One of the things that Caesar would be known for is his anti-authoritarian sense of style. The older generations would come to abhor the fashion of wearing one's toga loose, slung low on the hips. This new way of rocking the toga was thanks to Caesar. He liked his flow loose and carefree. After killing it in court for a year or so, the still young Caesar, he's about 22 now, decides to head to the island of Rhodes, off the coast of Greece. He's doing that to study rhetoric with one of the living masters of the craft, a dude by the name of Molon. On this trip, instead of learning rhetoric or studying rhetoric, he's in fact captured by pirates. He scoffs at the low amount of money they are ransoming him for and asks them to double it. Caesar then promises, once freed, to come back, capture them, and kill all of them. They laugh. 
No one can remember all the nooks and crannies of this coast, these islands, they say. We are invisible, so do your best. Now, the ransom does get paid, and it is double what was originally asked for, as Caesar said. He then returns to Rhodes, and having no standing in this foreign country, for he is not a senator, he's not an envoy of Rome, he has no official status whatsoever, but nonetheless, he works and gathers up a makeshift navy, sails back, and captures all the pirates. He then has them all crucified. He then returns to his studies. I bet later he will call on his abilities to muster a force by force of personality alone when he again raises a small army and attacks the country of Pontus for their alleged transgression into a Roman province nearby. All of this, again, he does as a private citizen at the age of 22, having no standing officially to do anything but sightsee in the countries he finds himself in. Now, it's around this time that he's called on for an actual official duty a diplomatic mission to the country of Bithynia, which is in Asia Minor, ostensibly to raise another naval fleet, this time with the blessing of the Roman Senate. It is here that Caesar met King Nicomedes, and some say engaged in a love affair with the much older man. The king is said to have been past the age of 70 at this point. Now, this is a story and a slander that would dog Caesar for the remainder of his life. Caesar's homosexual tendencies would be referenced by his rivals in the Senate every opportunity they could get. Now, what did Caesar think of this? It is apparent that he was not an out-of-the-closet gay man at this point, regardless of his sexual preferences. Rome, in general, didn't look fondly upon homosexuality. He expressed consternation at the label and thought that it would hinder his political career. Now, whether this was just acute political thinking or actual bias against being gay, it's not clear. Caesar's actions after the story started to spread was certainly telling as he worked tirelessly to prove the rumors false. And how does one most effectively combat rumors that one is more attractive to men than to women? By betting as many women as one could, as publicly as one could. And because Caesar was particularly inventive and capable in this area of his life, he added the extra layer of spite by only sleeping with married women of his political enemies. All it took was for you to come to Caesar's attention by speaking untruths about his relationship with King Nicomedes, and before the sun rose the next day, Caesar was sure to be pleasuring your wife and turning you into a cuckold in front of all your peers. It is safe to say that no part of one's life was immune to the political world of Rome at this time. All was truly fair in this particular version of love and war. Now, if you're keeping count, by the age of 24, Julius Caesar has been engaged twice, married once, been a priest of Jupiter, stripped of the office, a war hero, raised two navies, one army, captured and crucified a gang of pirates, declared and fought a small war against an unfriendly country, had a love affair with a king, became one of Rome's preeminent lawyers, banged half the wives of the Senate, and went toe-to-toe with one of Rome's most notorious tyrants and lived to tell the tale. And we are still decades away from anything having to do with the Gauls. And after all of this, Caesar was still, for all intents and purposes, broke. He was certainly famous, but for all his activity, he was not able to make any money off of it. In order for him to realize his dreams of he himself becoming the first man in Rome, like his uncle Marius, he would have to start making a lot more money. Now, this is where the rules of society hurt Caesar with his august family name, his robust lineage. It was so robust, so ancient, 
that the rules of society prohibited him from making money in any normal way. He could not own a business. He could not sell anything or make anything, for he was a patrician, despite his popularity's political affiliation, in order to enter the Senate when it was his time and win offices up to and including the coveted consul's chair, he would have to abide by the rules. This means instead of making money, he had to borrow it. Now, it is safe to say that Julius Caesar spent much of his adult life owing a lot of people a lot of money. It was this need that eventually led Caesar to form what is called the First Triumvirate, an alliance of three men that would lead eventually to the end of the Roman Republic. Caesar, needing two main things in order to continue his rise in the political ranks, he needed money, that's one of them, which he got when he invited the richest man in Rome, a guy named Marcus Crassus, to join his little party. Now, Crassus made a bunch of money buying all the houses and mansions of the people Sulla had killed and became Rome's largest slumlord. Now, you may know the name Marcus Crassus as he's also the dude who finally defeated the famous slave army of Spartacus and had the defeated army to a man crucified, which meant thousands of people, tens of thousands, actually, all along the roads leading to Rome. When one got within a couple of miles of Rome in any direction, the roadsides would have a man hanging from a cross every few yards, all the way to the gates. The other thing that Caesar needed was political cover. He was a much despised man in the Senate due to all those things I listed before, his philandering, his popularity, and his general awesomeness. For the men of the Senate of Rome, who considered themselves the cream of the crop, it was a hard pill to swallow when everything you could do this guy Caesar could do it better. Like Shatterstar in Deadpool 2. I'm better at you than everything. No one likes that guy. In order to reinforce his political clout, Caesar asked a guy named Pompey Magnus, which means Pompey the Great, a name that he gave himself as a child, to help protect his political six while he was working to be the best Roman he could be. Now, Pompey Magnus is a fascinating character, as much of Rome loved him in the same manner they loved Caesar. He was a winner. When Pompey was the head of an army, they never lost. Caesar would solidify this relationship with Pompey by offering his own daughter in marriage. Pompey, who accepted and fell very much in love with the offspring of Gaius Julius Caesar, her name, of course, was Julia. Now, this will set the stage for what is going to be the next major historical altercation between the Gauls and the Romans. And almost all of it will involve one man. Julius Caesar. He is so integral to this story because he is the person who wrote it all down. Unlike the first time the Romans and Gauls met, some 350 years previous, when the Sinones sacked Rome and ransomed it back to the Romans, this time someone did bother to write down what happened. The Gallic War, as it would be called, would be chronicled in its entirety in a book that has gone down in history being called The Commentaries. Now, what makes this so special it's not just the fact that something was written down at all, but the fact that the writing was taking place in real time. Caesar, in keeping with his genius, determined that in order to best cultivate support for his endeavor of subjugating all of Gaul, he wanted to keep public opinion on his side. He thought that despite what his enemies thought, he could retain the power he needed to complete his mission if he could keep the people informed. In many ways, this reminds me of our infamous president number 45, Donald Trump, and his Twitter feed. In order to subvert the traditional grapevine of information that flowed from 
Romans abroad to the Senate and then out to the people, Julius Caesar decided to create a, a new channel for him to get his information directly to the people. So again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. To that end, he would compose periodic reports written in beautiful, clear, concise Latin. Well, that's definitely different than Trump. <laughs> that he would send back to Rome to be copied and disseminated to whomever wanted a copy. In many ways, Caesar invented the bestseller as his missives from the front were the must-read page-turners that most of Rome couldn't wait to get their hands on. These efforts were so successful that we can also thank Caesar for inventing the modern way we came to consume such information. Whereas much of the writing of the day in Rome was still done on scrolls, which could be cumbersome to read and were expensive, he decided to have his commentaries cut up into sheets and then sewn together with a binding, creating what he called a codex, uh, what we would call a book. Now, you don't have to spend a ton of time with Caesar before you run into all these little details that end up being a big deal. From the erudite in the form of the book, to the ubiquitous in the form of the Julian calendar, to the innumerable military and engineering tasks that he created throughout his lifetime. Caesar was simply a snapshot of evolution in action. For me, he is an evolutionary human, a catalyst that determines the next epoch in human cultural history. But that's just me and Franz Funky Pants, who does call him the cleverest man to have possibly ever lived. The stage is now finally set. After 350 years of buildup, we were about to get the second showdown of Gaul versus Rome for the undisputed title of ruler of the Western world. And you'll have to forgive me for the boxing metaphor that will be very prevalent over the next part of this episode. Now, this is intentional, of course, but more than an apt metaphor for the type of relationship and history the people of Gaul and the people of Rome have, it's also a shout out to one of my heroes of the sporting world that played a large part in my early teenage years. I am speaking of the recently deceased middleweight champion of the world, Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Former undisputed, I should say, middleweight champion of the world, who defended his undisputed title the third most times in boxing history, who amassed a 62-win, three-loss, and two-tie record with the ridiculous 52 knockouts, which is the highest percentage of knockouts for any middleweight champion in history. Basically, eight out of every 10 world-class fighters Hagler fought ended up on their asses. Now, he lost a fight in March of 1976 and then proceeded to win every fight he was in for the next 11 years or so. Then he lost his last fight and walked away from boxing, never to fight again. And in that, Hagler's willingness to walk away and make something of himself by doing something else, somewhere else, inspired me, I think, as I keep making fools of myself and being willing and able to start over has been a very effective tool for me in avoiding living through too much shame. I mean, if the marvelous one could walk away from something as meaningful as his stellar, one-of-a-kind career in the ring, I mean, this guy was named Fighter of the Decade in the 1980s, and his fight against Tommy the Hitman Hearns was named, was named Fight of the Decade as well, even though it didn't even go a full three rounds. So if Hagler could walk away, I could walk away. Both inside and outside the ring, Marvin was challenging and unorthodox. Inside the ring, he was a master craftsman who could fight both lefty and righty effectively and fluidly, sometimes switching dozens of times in a single round. In fact, this is one of the reasons it took him so long 
to get a title match. He literally had 50 fights, 5-0, before they gave him his first shot at winning the title, which, of course, he won. He was just a very difficult fighter to fight against because he just annoyed you. It made him an extremely difficult puzzle to solve while getting stalked relentlessly and punched in the face by a man who simply knocks you out when you square off against him. Now, outside the ring, frustrated that announcers were not pronouncing his nickname, Marvelous, as in Marvelous Marvin Hagler, he had his name changed legally to include Marvelous as his new first name. No matter where you met Marvelous, you needed to be on your toes and be ready for the unexpected. Upon retirement, Hagler moved to Italy to play bad guys in B-Italian movies. He passed away in March, and I spent the better part of the night watching the Hearns-Hagler replay and talking about him with my kids. Now, another thing that made Hagler special for me was that he was born and raised in New England. In the 80s, there was some stuff to cheer about concerning Boston sports. I mean, there was Larry Bird and the Celtics, and the Bruins and Sox were competitive, but they always found excruciating ways to fall just short of winning. But in Marvelous Marvin, a local kid from Brockton, Mass., a hometown of fellow boxing legend Rocky Marciano, the fabled undefeated heavyweight champion who finished his career a punishing and pristine 49-0, Brockton is not a big or wealthy place. To have two of the best purveyors of the sweet science from the town was a hell of a thing. On top of that, the high school that both Rocky and Marvelous attended, Brockton High, their mascot is the Boxers, of course. What New England had in Marvelous Marvin was a consistent winner. In title bout after title bout, spanning almost eight years, Hagler remained undefeated. I loved watching him wear out an opponent, working the body until he was nothing left but a head on a string, a stiff breeze ready to knock it over. In honor of the great champion from Brockton, Mass., Marvelous Marvin Hagler, I offer up the fight of the 1980s and the 1985 duel in the desert between Tommy the Hitman Hearns and the undisputed middleweight champion of the world, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, as the metaphor for Gaul versus Caesar II. Now, in many ways, I like this comparison not only because it was a brutal showdown in the desert between Hearns and Hagler, as it also most assuredly is between the Gauls and Rome's legions, but the combatants in each instance bear a resemblance to one another. In many ways, Tommy the Hitman Hearns was Gallic in his style as a boxer. An imposing six feet one, he weighed in at 154 pounds, looking very much like one of his nicknames, that being the Motor City Cobra. Hearns overwhelmed the shorter fighters of the middleweight class, and he planned to do the same things against the almost five-inch shorter, both in height and reach, Hagler. Hearns was a bomber, a boxer who threw tremendous punches. That is where he earned his other, more famous nickname, the Hitman. When he got a clean shot on you, you went down, so to speak. Hearns also possessed a formidable jab that could do serious damage due to his tremendous reach advantage. All in all, like the Gauls, Hearns ascribed to the adage that the best defense is a good offense. Now, on the other hand, Marvelous Marvin resembles in many ways Julius Caesar and his army of lethal legionnaires. They were both much smaller than their opponents, but possessed both an uncanny discipline to become proficient in multiple fighting styles with a true fighter's intuition when deflects between different tactics to back off or to head in for the kill. He would win many of his fights by simply outthinking and outworking his opponents. They were smarter fighters for sure, 
and most certainly more powerful and tougher ones as well, but there was never a fighter as good at all three at the same time like Marvelous Marvin, and for that matter, the Gallic legions of Julius Caesar. For they might be very well the greatest ancient army ever assembled. So let's go to the tale of the tape. In this corner, coming in with a population, some say upwards of 30 million, but we'll stick with something more reasonable, like 10 to 12 million, we have the almost, but not quite, unified Gaul. German classical scholar Thomas Momsen describes the culture of our brave early Gauls at this point. Quote, To all appearances, Gaul, at the time when Caesar entered it, had reached the pinnacle of any culture of which she was capable. Unquote. The people of ancient France knew that the stakes were high this time. Accordingly, unlike the first time, with just one tribe, the Sinones, we are going to get massive Gallic armies, confederacies of tribes who most of the time hated each other, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of men strong. By the final epic battles of this almost decade-long conflict, the Gauls come to fight. And by this point, they are finally being called Gauls. Now, for those keeping score, the term Gaul comes into use right around the 2nd century BC. So this is going to happen about 70 years before this war. The reason the word Gaul came into being is that the people called the Celts that we talked about, who gave themselves the name the Celts, also were called at times the Galates or Galates. Now that makes sense because remember the Celts had made it all the way past Italy to Asia Minor and settled their own little country in Turkey called Galatia. Now in the beginning, the Romans would use the term Galli to describe the people that looked like those people and was changed in good to Gaul or Gaulus in Latin in the book Origins by the Roman Stoic senator Cato. Phew, so now I can stop calling them people that would be called Gauls. Word up, literally. At this juncture, the Gallic world views Rome mostly as a trading partner and an occasional ally. Allies are needed as the Gauls live in constant fear of the Germans. And to them, it appeared that you could buy your way out of dying when it came to dealing with the Romans. But that was not the case when it came to dealing with the Germans, who the Gauls thought were simply bloodthirsty barbarians. Julius Caesar himself would say, quote, Julius Caesar, he always referred to himself in the third person, waged this war as much in the interest of Gaul as of Rome. At this point, there is no open conflict between Gauls or Romans. And this is starting around 60 BC or so, because Gaul is busy, as you remember, reaching its pinnacle. Now, the Gauls still fight in the same manner at this point as they had over three centuries earlier when they had burned Rome to the ground. According to one French scholar, it was not a well-oiled machine, to say the least, for when the Gauls decided it was time to fight, they, quote, went out to war in large crowds, accompanied by their women and children and carrying an incredible collection of personal property, plates, and utensils of all kinds on interminable files of wagons. And in spite of all this impedimentia, they never succeeded in having enough provisions for a campaign of any duration. How often as not the success of one of their armies ruined from their lack of victuals. Unquote. The complex and unstructured nature of the Gallic political system made it very difficult for any appointed general, and they were appointed for each battle, to have any real sway as the men he was supposedly leading had stronger allegiances to their own clan and tribe in most cases. 
another reason why unification of Gaul, while possible, was extremely improbable. Now, to the observer, a Gallic battle would look a lot like wild animals trying to outwild each other. Following no organization, the men would charge their foes, naked, carrying enormous shields and swords, screaming and howling. Most armies at this point stayed out of bow range, so we're not talking about a quick sprint here, as the Gaul is charging, junk flapping, war whooping, sword swinging, and most definitely out of breath. It would make no matter once they arrived on the lines, be it a line of men in armor, a picket of sharpened spikes, or a pitch-covered wall, the Gauls would hurl themselves at any obstacle mindlessly, like ants. Their weaponry also had nary advance from the days of Brennus, a large, unwieldy sword, a proto-sword, really, a slab of metal with only one cutting edge and a dull point was still in use, as were the aforementioned full-body shields, unfortunately, most often were made of wicker, which had some serious disadvantages when it came in contact with the Roman javelin. Caesar tells a story about how one of his soldiers had perfected the move of actually skewering multiple Gauls on a javelin at one time, like a shish kebab. He was particularly pleased to hear that as the javelin's iron bent as it thrust through the human bodies, the humans so connected would remain, thanks to their poorly conceived wicker shields, nailed together like a wicker gall or d'oeuvre. At the beginning of the Gallic War, the Gauls had some cavalry, but little or no archers. And as it wouldn't be a French battle without a head-scratcher, for instance, Google French officers in World War I, refusing to remove their colorful uniforms in spite of making inviting targets for German snipers. Now, in this case, the head-scratcher is that the ancient Gauls decided that they had no need for headgear of any kind. No helmets. In fact, because it was considered cowardly to not bear one's chest in battle, very few Gauls even wore chest plates. As mentioned before, the Gauls were still relying on whooping and wailing, going balls out and trying to outwild their enemy. This time, however, their enemy was not falling for all the bluster, and it would turn out to be too late by the time Gauls were able to change tactics. And now it's time to meet their enemy. And in this corner, we'll let Franz Funk Brentano lay it out for us as he tells us, quote, the Romans were under the command of a leader who was doubtless the greatest soldier in history, not endowed perhaps with the genial impostuity of Hannibal or the magnificent grasp of generalities and prodigious yet precise judgment of a Napoleon, but with his varied gifts, possessing everything required for a leader in war, clarity of thought, rapidity of decision, precision of execution, an astonishing power of calculating the means to an end and a wonderful talent for organization, which left nothing to chance, an astonishing lack of scruple, the cunning to pose always as the defender of virtue and right, the art of making all means appear just, that attain the ends, and finally, the gift of inspiring the love and enthusiasm of his men. Unquote. We have the one, the only, Gaius Julius Caesar, and about 10 Roman legions or so, about 20 to 40,000 men, given the time of year and the need. Now, on top of all his other talents, Julius Caesar was also a military genius, it seems. He would routinely win battles he should have lost, appear on your horizon weeks before he was expected, build incredible feats of military engineering, often winning battles just by flexing their ability to build machines of war, and sometimes not even having to use them. 
there's this story when he's building one of those siege towers, you know, to get over the wall of a Gallic defenses. And the Gauls are sort of laughing at him because he's building them so far away. They're imposing looking, but they're not even close to the wall. So like, what are they going to do? Jump? And then all of a sudden, the siege towers start to move because the Romans have figured out how to put them on wheels. And that's literally more than the Gauls could handle. And they literally just give up. They're like, we give! You know, anyone can move, you know, 120 siege towers, you know, five stories tall, all in unison was definitely, obviously, an imposing sight to see. Years of political machinations had finally granted Caesar what is called a proconsul position, meaning basically he was sent to rule like a governor over a country on behalf of the Senate of Rome. He had been given the newer province, Illyricrium, which is now Bosnia, Serbia, the Balkans area, so right across the Aegean Sea from Italy. But since that place was practically crawling with Gauls, it wasn't hard for the Romans and Caesar to come in contact with some. Caesar will find himself in Illyricrium and eventually in Gaul and have the ability to continue to stay there thanks in large part to the cover granted to him by his two co-conspirators, Crassus and Pompey. Caesar is making Crassus even more rich and Pompey is in love with his wife, Caesar's daughter. Back in Rome, these offerings by these two men are making it possible for Crassus to grease the wheels and for Pompey to squeeze the palms to make this all come about. But make no mistake, what Caesar is about to do is not very Roman. He was basically defying every order of the Senate and strong-arming his way in rewriting the very constitution of Rome. This will drive a large portion of the Senate, the nobles, crazy. They loathe the man, hate him with a passion that will, of course, result in his assassination. But this break in the way things are This decorum was so well gauche to Caesar. He actually said so. He has a great quote where he says, quote, to criticize gaucherie is, well, gauche, unquote. So Caesar had his triumvirate. He had the people and the nobles of the Senate had to, for the time being, suck it. The number disparity I also just laid out is ridiculous. 12 million versus 40,000. But that is the long and short of it. This may seem an impossible task, but then you, my friend, have never met a Roman, especially one that was being led by Julius Caesar. Oh, and having the backing of a city approaching its 700th birthday, one of the largest cities in the world, that never hurts. They supplied the best trained soldiers in the world, the most amazing contraptions for killing people. For instance, there's a thing called a ballista, which could shoot a 225-pound arrow a distance of 150 yards or so. They also had spring-loaded siege engines that used entire trees as sharpened rams, coiled and released with great devastation, catapults capable of hurling half-ton stones, machine-like wagons called tortoises that worked like armed personnel carriers, protecting soldiers as they breached the walls of your town. Compared to their Gallic counterpart, the Roman legionnaire was clad almost head-to-toe in leather and iron. They carried not a cumbersome meat cleaver, but a short, stout sword called a gladius. Pointed, sharp on both sides, and light enough to be swung continuously, slashing and stabbing for hours. They also carried a small shield and an iron javelin or two, and that would complete average Roman legionnaire's kit. But 
We're not dealing with average Roman legionnaires now. But what Caesar had at his disposal, like marvelous Marvin Hagler, was a fighting machine capable of changing on a whim, switching up tactics, always keeping an eye on the end goal and doing whatever it took to get there. The French historian Camille Julien believed that Caesar had in his legions, quote, the most solid body of infantry that any nation has ever produced, unquote. And there you have it. We have a raw puncher with all the physical gifts in the world in the form of the Gauls versus the disciplined professional fighter who attacks your weaknesses and beats you from the inside out in the form of Rome and Julius Caesar. And as we are prone to say here on the fray, it is on like Donkey Kong. Caesar and the rest of the Roman world see Gaul and separate it into three distinct parts. Gauls who wear togas, that would be Cisalpine Gaul, Gaul before the Alps. Gauls who wear pants, that would be the province or province today, and long-haired Gaul, which is basically everywhere else. And in case you were wondering, they like to wear their hair long in that part of Gaul. That's, that's where their name comes from. When Caesar is talking Gauls, he is almost always talking about long-haired Gauls, which make up the vast majority of Gauls in any case. Another thing is that a major player in all the events that will transpire are the entity that everyone calls the Germans. And I do mean everyone. Caesar, the Gauls, the Greeks. Most ancient sources just lump the maniacal barbarians north of the Rhine into one group of brutish death and mayhem. Now, for the sake of this episode and an already extended effort to supersize this story, I'm going to keep them just as they are. The capital T, capital G, Germans. The boogeymen. One giant group of a shit show for you and yours if they show up at your doorstep. In reality, of course, they are just more tribes, which are more places unknown. But the human mind is funny, and all the people south of the Rhine River really are spooked, historically speaking, by the people that inhabit the area that is Germany. Julius Caesar sums up the relationship between the Gauls and Germans thusly, quote, There was a time when the Gauls were more warlike than the Germans. They made war against the Germans and planted colonies across the Rhine because their own territory was too small for their dense population. But now the Gauls are plentifully supplied with articles of utility and luxury because of their acquaintance with imports from abroad. Gradually, they have become habituated to inferiority. After repeated defeats in battle, they do not even pretend equality with the Germans, unquote. And these boogeymen, these Germans, these ancient stormtroopers were what were happening in and around 60 BC. They were crossing the Rhine River and curb stomping some Gallic grills. It just happened to be near where Caesar was governing. Now, of course, this happens from time to time. We've mentioned the sheer size of these tribes. When they run out of arable land, they need to move and they need to move fast since feeding a couple hundred thousand mouths a couple thousand years ago was no easy matter. But when the tribe is German, it can be a little bit like a fox in the hen house. People get spooked. The Romans are included in this. And so when the Germans came pouring into your land, you have a couple of choices, as the ancient Gaul saw it. Fight and most likely die or run. Maybe this is why they got so good at making carts. They needed them so much. A very large group of Gauls, most likely Celtic in origin, called the Helvetii, who lived basically in modern-day Switzerland, decided that the marauding Germans were too close for comfort and decided to cart up their shit and hit the cobblestones. The main issue they had is that there was a hell of a lot of Helvetii to move, 
Estimates come in as high as 400,000 men, women, and children, not to mention silverware crockpots and a whole shitload of she-goats. Now, it reminds me of that joke. What time is it when an elephant sits on your fence? Time to get a new fence. What time is it when 400,000 men, women, and children, and she-goats want to go through your province? Well, that was the problem that faced Caesar. The leaders of the Helvetii sent envoys to him, asking for his help, for they were only trying to flee from the Germans and set up shop in some nice valley somewhere west, maybe maybe near our Aquitanian brothers in southern Gaul. So yeah, could you, you know, like, let us march through your province? Now, Caesar needed some time to consider what a decision in this circumstance could mean. What was the best course of action? How best to avert the damage of this slow-moving disaster that was close to a half a million on the march? Say yes, and you see all the farms and people decimated in your province by this voracious band of long-haired gulls. But one would avoid a fight. Now, on the other hand, a firm hell no, you want to get to southern Gaul, then travel through Gaul, through our province, to quote Gandalf, you shall not pass. Well, that probably would result in some sort of fight. He was not prepared to clash with 150,000 fighting men. So what is Caesar to do? He knew that he needed time. So he was like, yo, give me a few weeks to talk to Rome proper. Meet me back here in a month and you'll have my answer. The Helvetii agreed to these terms and rode off. Caesar, however, did not send any message to Rome. Instead, he decided to fortify his position a bit. Quote, Meanwhile, he, remember Caesar is writing here in the third person, used the legion he had, so about 7,500 men or so, and some of the soldiers from the province who had assembled to build a wall 16 feet high with a trench over 19 miles from Lake Geneva to the Jura Mountains, unquote. So that's basically the area that the Helvetii wanted to march through. And that, my friend, is Julius Caesar in a nutshell. Using his wiles, or lying, to buy some time, then accomplishing something that sounds utterly preposterous that completely changes the calculus of the opponent. I would like to call that a marvelous way to wage a military campaign. A wall with a trench 16 feet high that was almost 20 miles long? I mean, how were the Helvetii not like, whoa, dude, looks like you've been busy. Inevitably, Caesar said, ain't no way you are marching through my Roman province. Take your long hair and skedaddle. Do you hear me? The Helvetii's shoulders slumped and they sullenly marched off. Some tried to build boats to cross Lake Geneva. And for the most part, those efforts didn't end well. So eventually things came to a head. Caesar got enough soldiers to form up a proper army and beat the holy hell out of the Helvetii, officially kicking off the Gallic War. In this aspect as well, it resembles the Hearns-Hagler fight. The Gallic War was fought in three main parts. The Hagler fight was about three rounds long. Each round of the boxing match was a microcosm of action and boxing acumen. The rounds seemed to last longer than usual because so much happened in each of them. This is what happens with Gaul and Caesar. The first round was kicked off by the meandering threat of the Helvetii, running from the big bad Germans. Caesar will use this as an excuse to venture all over Gaul now, building a network of mostly devoted Gallic clients. There will be battles, for sure, but this first round is about positioning and placing oneself into the best position possible, no matter what your opponent decided to do. And for the most part, out of this dulcetory stupor, they, the Gauls, allowed Caesar to get the scent of conquest. If he didn't have all of Gaul in his sights by now, then he certainly did 
after the Helvetii. Now, some of this looking the other way by the rest of Gaul while Caesar got his bearings on their soil was due, in fact, that many of the Gauls didn't see Rome as the enemy. Franz Funk Brantana reminds us, quote, Indeed, the Gauls did not first recognize the Romans as enemies, but regarded them rather as allies against invaders. And even when they did understand that the campaign undertaken by the red-cloaked proconsul, and that would be Caesar, would turn anything but their advantage and that under pretext of doing them a service, the Romans were only aiming at extending their own empire. In the majority of aristocratic cities in Gaul, the rich still declared themselves in favor of Caesar, unquote. And what commences from this point is a real Game of Thrones type situation for the whole enchilada that is Gaul and all its people and culture. And when I say that, I'm not saying that at this point, Gaul unites against this dastardly foe, overwhelms his paltry force of super soldiers, but I can't because they didn't. When I say Game of Thrones, I mean that Caesar is but one player on the game board. All the other major tribes of Gaul, in addition to Julius Caesar, were all fighting for the same thing, a unified Gaul. To the victor goes the spoils, the last man standing wins, and Caesar spent the most part of round one solidifying his position in Gaul. The Gauls, content to let Caesar rampage all over the country, acting like the world's biggest nimbies. And if you don't know that term, it stands for not in my backyard. As long as Caesar was messing with someone else, especially someone I didn't like, what was it to me? And that seemed to be what Caesar seemed to be doing. That was probably in his head when he decided to traverse all of Gaul, moving from the east all the way to the west, to the coast, to give battle to a tribe called the Venetii. These are the Greyjoys of Gaul, the seafaring tribe that Caesar describes in the commentaries as, quote, the Venetii were dominant that whole district because they had so many ships which they regularly sailed to Britain, and they surpassed the rest in knowledge and experience in seafaring. Controlling the few scattered harbors along the violent open sea, they extract tribute from virtually all who sailed through these waters, unquote. So I bet there wasn't a lot of tears shed by the rest of Gaul when Caesar set his sights on the Venetis. This was another chance, the third one so far in his relatively short life, for Caesar to raise a navy. He describes why he made the decision to fight the Veneti on the open water and not a place he wanted to be. He would inform us that, quote, generally the towns of the Venetii were planted on the tips of spits or headlands and afforded approach neither by land, for the tide boiled in the sea at intervals of 12 hours, nor yet by sea, for the same tide is receded and the ships were caught in the shallows, unquote. That quote is noteworthy both for its description of ancient beach town as well as Caesar's incredulity in reference to the tide. Now, this is due to the fact that their sea, the Mediterranean, has none, no tides. He had never experienced such a thing before his engagement with the Venetii. It is also worth noting that these ships for the Romans I am referencing were not stolen or purchased from the Gauls. Caesar had over 220 ships built from scratch up the river from the Venetii, and he did this all in about six weeks. Now, Caesar's decision to fight on the sea didn't go well at first. The boats of the Gauls were much bigger and stouter, Roman boats were small and built for agility and ramming. They relied more on oar power than wind. So after noticing this, Caesar 
retreats, and goes back to the drawing board. In the laboratory, Caesar and his lieutenants devise a hook with a sharpened inside curve that when thrown up and around a rope on a Gallic frigate, it would cut the rope, rendering the sails limp and the boat immobile. At that point, it was just a matter of time as cohorts of Roman boats rowed their way around the disabled Venati boats, boarding them and slaughtering everyone on board and burning the ship to the water. This is how Caesar spent the first round of his title fight, landing calculated blows to the infrastructure of Gaul so that later on he would have its head on a string ready for the knockout punch, just like marvelous Marvin Hagler. Now, before word reached too far, Caesar lured another couple of tribes into a fight under the false premise that they had just had their asses handed to them, that is the Romans, by the seafaring Gauls. Obviously not true. Now, this represents one of the most telling issues the Gauls would have throughout their ordeal with Caesar and his legions. Caesar was able to get this information out because the Gauls would be often their own worst enemy. And the cleverest man who had ever lived most certainly knew that. Caesar would play the tribes against each other masterfully. His ability to network and learn about the people he attempted to commit genocide on was incredible. This was probably in parts due to the personal charisma of Caesar, which he had in spades, and the seduction of being seen as one of Roman's favorites. And of course, most of the tribes Caesar was working with had their own intentions on grabbing hold of a united Gaul. Now, everyone knew that that was the end game. It was just a matter of who would come out on top. Caesar, for one, knew that he was playing a zero-sum game at this point, and so he succinctly puts it, quote, United Gaul would have defied the world, unquote. These words ended up on a 22-foot statue of the Gallic war chieftain Vercingetorix, seemingly the only man who would eventually stand toe-to-toe with Julius Caesar. Now, we're going to get to him. But I wanted to bring this statue to your attention because it is telling that even in the act of commemorating the history of their country, French people, for the statue was erected in 1865, includes not the words of the man who was being honored, the French guy for crying out loud, but instead we get the pristine prose of one of the worst guys ever, the ubiquitous Gaius Julius Caesar. Though the great Vercingetorix was not yet on the mind of Caesar, a unified Gaul certainly was. So after placating the northwest of Gaul, including the coast, Caesar again would turn his sights on the northeast of the country. So again, marching all the way across the country, this time to pick a fight with the longest of long-haired Gauls, the Bell Guy, who as a tribe make up the people who would, as you probably guessed, make up modern-day Belgium. Caesar was attempting to end this first round on a high note, and he was using his full network of Gallic spies to see doubt and rebellion among the extremely formidable tribes of Belgae. It is during these machinations that we get some insight into how Caesar saw the people of Gaul. It is in these little sidebars when you get a feeling that you're getting some real Caesar here, as unfiltered as the man would probably be able to get under the circumstances. In this example, he's discussing the challenge of working a spy network against the Gauls. It gives a great window into the day-to-day life of living in Gaul. Quote, They are capricious in choosing a course and prone to revolution, that is, the Gauls. It is characteristic of them that they force travelers to stop, even when they are unwilling, and question them on any news or rumors they may have heard. And in the towns, 
The crowd surrounds traitors and forces them to say where they have come from and what they have heard there, unquote. I would say this is a very astute observation by Caesar. It is most certainly played out through the history of the country of Gaul and what would become France, capricious, prone to revolution, and extremely nosy. Checking off all of those cliche boxes, right? Franz Funk breaks it down thusly. Quote, Moreover, he had spies, secret agents whom he knew how to maintain among the enemy and chosen from their own ranks. Duratius among the Pictones. Veritisco among the Nervi, Synagatorix among the Terviri, and many others helped Caesar gain the information he required or propagated among their fellow countrymen the true or false reports and news in which the Romans desired to have spread. Unquote. Caesar had his ears to the ground, and you could tell nearing the end of the first round after two years of crisscrossing Gaul that so far his plan was working. There was, at this point, no reason to veer from what had been a masterful job of placating the nobility of Gaul, playing them off each other. Meanwhile, you take out some of the more unliked or difficult foes in key areas, keeping the overall plan of subjugating Gaul in place. At the core of this plan were the Germans, as we've mentioned. And once again, Caesar will use the aggression of a German tribe as an excuse to make a claim to a portion of Gaul that was heretofore independent. The Belgae, as I mentioned, were formidable warriors, and facing an army consisting of them and their Germanic neighbors at once was a bigger bite than Caesar wanted to chew on. So he put his spy network to work and helped create a reason to fuck up the Germans, and them alone. Ostensibly, of course, to protect the sovereignty of Gaul, at their behest, in fact. So whatever, we're going to pay Hero here one more time for you guys. Just stand back and let the adults work. Caesar provoked an enormous amount of Germans into a pitched battle and beat them handily. But in the final seconds of the round, as Caesar being the superlative soldier would understand, and as Marvelous Marvin would too, that is where you make a huge impression. The campaign season for the year was winding down. Soon the legions would be tucked away somewhere safe for the winter. But with the time remaining, Caesar wanted to end with a flourish, something that the Romans would be remembered for that would stick in people's minds. This is the part of the story where we get a little time travel. Okay, not real time travel, but something that for the people of the time of Caesar, it would appear as out of place and out of this world as a time traveler would appear to us. Now, what was this incredible feat that the Romans performed? It was, in keeping with Caesar's MO, a feat of engineering that created such a stir and stuck in the minds of Germans, Gauls, and the rest of history in general. To call something Caesar does amazing can get a little tiresome. He does a lot of things that would be considered impossible for the people of his time. He was unbelievably fast in action, for instance, showing up where he was unexpected, or at least much earlier than expected, all the time, creating a sense that there was more than just one Caesar out there. But for me, it was his engineering feats that take the cake. Already we have covered the fact that the Romans have constructed 220 navy ships in a little over a month, a 19-mile wall 16 feet high, complete with ditch and sharpened spikes, on the top of the fact that every damn night, the 40,000 troops under Caesar do what every Roman legion did for hundreds of years. They would build a fortified camp, complete with high walls, towers, working gates, enough to hold thousands of troops and all the other retinue of an army at war. Every damn night, rain or shine, 
You march 50 miles today, build the camp. Fight a battle, awesome, build the camp. Under attack, too bad, build the camp. It's funny that I use the description of ants to describe the Gauls and their fighting style when the Romans do a really good ant impersonation when it comes to building stuff. So without that building, what was left to do? Well, about that time machine. Now, after beating the Germans, some of those Germans had made it back across the Rhine River and Caesar felt it necessary to put an exclamation point on his victory. He looked over the quarter mile distance, so about 1,500 feet from shore to shore on the Rhine River and decided, yeah, let's build a bridge. Caesar explains, quote, Upon conclusion of the German campaign, many considerations determined Caesar to cross the Rhine, of which the most compelling was to show the Germans, who were ready to invade Gaul, that a Roman army could and would cross the Rhine and terrify Germany, unquote. And that is exactly what Caesar and his legions did. And you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to go a little long with this Caesar quote, but fuck it. What else am I doing this for? He's going to describe here the building of the bridge. Quote, Caesar was determined to cross the Rhine, but he thought it hardly safe to cross in boats and deemed it unworthy of his own or his country's dignity. And so, through the construction of a bridge presented great difficulties by reason of the width, rapidity, and depth of the river, he nevertheless resolved to make the attempt or else not cross at all. The type of bridge that he adopted was as follows. Wooden poles, a foot and a half thick, sharpened a little from the end, and adapted to the varying depth of the river, was coupled in pairs at intervals of two feet. They were lowered into the river by floats and driven by rams, not vertically like ordinary piles, but tilted at an angle in the direction of the current. Next, a similar set of piles, parallel to the first but sloping against the powerful thrust of the current, was carried across the river and driven in. Beams two feet wide, fitting to the intervals between the piles of each couple, were laid across. The whole framework being kept in position by a pair of underbraces running from either side. Since they were held apart and yet clamped together, the structure was stable and it was so designed that the greater the force of the current, the more closely were the piles locked together. The trestles thus constructed were interconnected by boards running in the direction of the bridge, and these were overlaid with poles and wattle work. Finally, to break the impact of the river's current, Piles were driven in diagonally from either shore, and at the center formed a sort of buttress, which was connected with the main fabric of the bridge. A similar structure was set up a little above the bridge, so that if the natives should launch tree trunks or barges to demolish it, these fenders might lessen their force and so prevent injury to the bridge. Within ten days after the collection of timber began, the whole work was finished and the army crossed the bridge." Unquote. That last line again, 10 days to build a bridge strong enough for 40,000 men to march across at one time. This had never been done before. No one had ever crossed the Rhine with an army in such a way. For the Germans on the other side, the sight of Roman legions on their soil was akin, in my mind, to a culture from the future popping up on the White House lawn as a way of showing us that they were watching us and can get to us whenever they wanted to. And that seems to be the whole reason for building the bridge at all as a demonstration of the real might of Rome, where no obstacle was too great to overcome. But the coup de grace was still coming. And that was what Caesar did when he was done marching around Germany. After a couple days of raping and pillaging, 
that he felt that the Germans had got the message. Turned around, marched back over his bridge, and in his words then, quote, destroyed the bridge, unquote. Boom goes the dynamite. Take that, you barbarians. We, the legions of Rome, are so powerful that even the most astounding engineering feat you've ever seen means next to nothing to us. If necessary, we'll just build it again. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And with that, Caesar dispersed his legions throughout Gaul and taking a couple of them with him, returned south to where the Gauls wore togas to wait out the winter. Now, some of the Gauls were starting to get a whiff of what Caesar was cooking and started half-hearted attempts to unite together to fight against the Romans. Now, these always failed thanks to the spy network of Caesar, most often just dissipating under that relentless pressure of Caesar's war machine. So round one had definitely and decisively gone to Caesar. So like any great fighter, Caesar wanted to come out in round two and set the tone. After dispatching and frightening the Germans a couple of times, Caesar chose as his target the island of Britain. Caesar says that he does this as it is a key stronghold to the one thing almost all Gauls have in common, and that is Druids, the Druidic religion. Now, if you're wondering where all my talk of the Gallic religion is, I have made the executive decision to ignore in its entirety the subject, minus a couple little tidbits here and there, as I'm planning on talking about it extensively in the next episode. So that's where the Druids are. So needless to say, whether it is a strategic stronghold of Gallic belief or a vision in the heads of Romans, Caesar included, of an island where one could find pearls the size of your fist, all the tin you could ever want, and untold, unknown riches sure to be heaped in piles along the roadside. The big opening salvo Caesar had planned for round two all but fizzled. Though he tries to put a brave spin on it, overall the campaign against the people of Britain, who mostly called themselves Celts, was a bust for the Romans. Yes, the natives fought a good fight, but it was mostly the weather and the tides that doomed Caesar, one time losing his entire fleet of ships because they didn't understand that a full moon would mean a higher tide. Now, this was fitting start to the second round of the championship fight. It is in this round that Caesar begins to lose a little of his luster, when the people of Gaul begin to truly wake up to realize that the man they thought of as an ally was in fact the most insidious enemy of all, the enemy you invited into your world. Some of the most obstinate tribes, coincidentally tribes that had expressed an interest in ruling over United Gaul, began to talk to each other finally. A lot of this has to do with the less than stellar soldiering that Caesar and his legions were doing over in jolly old England. When Caesar finally gave up his dreams of the round table, he found a place in Gaul that he had felt confident after round one was placated, but in reality was just starting to rumble and grumble and start to foment into serious rebellion. One French historian has this to say about the Gauls as the second phase of the war starts. Quote, the Gauls, who had been outraged for years, deceived, robbed, put to the sword, or sold into slavery during one of the most hateful periods in the history of the human race, these Gauls began to unite, as far as it was possible in this epoch, for the deliverance of their country, unquote. Even in Rome proper, news of the less than successful campaign in Britain was beginning to tarnish some of the well-polished image of Caesar. A political enemy of Gaius Julius by the name of Catullus penned this little ditty after news of Britain reached the Senate. Quote, Debauchee, spendthrift, and robber, 
Who latest thou favorite devour the treasures of the long-haired Gauls in faraway Britain? Caesar, the vilest of Romans, debauchee, spendthrift, and robber. Thy favorite strut about and wallow in wealth. Caesar, the greatest debauchee of Rome, though free liver, spendthrift, and robber. O general most rare, thou didst go to the most distant isles of the West with thine infamous minions only to devour hundreds of millions." This is how most of the second round will go between the Romans and the Gauls. The fight for Caesar will become larger. He will have to contend with the real rebellion in Gaul, one which a leader will rise that will prove to be equal of Caesar in many ways. He will also have to deal with his political safety net, the triumvirate, his alliance with the richest and most powerful men in Rome, Marcus Crassus and Pompey Magnus, was about to fall apart. Now, it was never the most stable of alliances, this being mostly due to the relationship between Pompey and Caesar. They were a lot alike, other than that Pompey was a good deal older than Caesar and had the reputation that Caesar one day wished to have. Pompey knew this and didn't like it, but he did like one thing about Caesar, and that was his daughter. In fact, Pompey was absolutely dumbstruck in love with the girl. And that was the only thing that kept the men amicable. Upon his return from Britain, his daughter, Pompey's wife, perished in childbirth, dying in the arms of a devastated husband. And with that, the political cover Pompey provided for Caesar all but disappeared. This was not due to any aggression on the part of Pompey. The man simply went into a deep depression, stopped attending the Senate, and basically retreated from society in general. He became useless to Caesar. This was part of the war from about 54 to 52 or so BC, when we get a lot less fighting and a lot more backroom dealing, attempted diplomacy and unpopular political executions. It is a messy time where one man known for not getting messy, in fact, has to get down into the mud and blood and make something positive out of a very unpredictable situation. Caesar begins to execute prominent Gauls, leaders who he deems enemies based on their attempts to unify their country against Rome. It is a relatively basic process. Caesar applies pressure on a tribe, they relent, agree to terms, offer hostages, then the tribe goes ahead and breaks the treaty. Caesar returns and orders all the nobles of the tribe flogged to death, or crucified, or beheaded, or stoned to death, rinse and repeat. Franz Funk says the Gauls were not cowed by these public displays of desecration and death, even though it meant that Caesar would not only increase his cruelty. He writes, quote, the wicked cruelty of which Caesar stained his glory is in part explained by his fury roused at the resistance offered by this rabble and the checks afflicted on him. Unquote. Things got so bad for Caesar that he couldn't even win a battle without it looking bad for him. When he got a chance to flex a little, finally fight a battle, at one point he found himself and his legions to be within 12 miles or so of a very large host of Gauls, over 400,000 again. Caesar determines that he wants to fight. The Gauls, for their part, say, hey, we're not so into this fighting thing. We want to meet and talk terms. Caesar said, sure, sure, send your, send your leaders over and we'll chat. The Gauls did, and Caesar proceeded to put them under house arrest, send his legions against the unprepared, unled Gauls, and slaughtered them, men, women, and children. And then he executed the leaders. Now, Caesar writes about this event as if it was a fortuitous one, the capturing of the leaders, allowing for the slaughter, masquerading as a battle. He says, quote, The Romans, 
delivered from a terrible war in which they were opposed by 430,000 of the enemy, returned to their camp without a loss, unquote. Needless to say, this didn't go over well in certain parts of Rome, where Caesar had lost much of his cover. A staunch enemy of Caesar, another guy named Cato, gave a rousing speech that condemned Caesar and asked his fellow senators to strip him of all of his imperiums and throw him to the Gauls to seek justice. Now, in keeping with my comparison to Hagler-Hearn's fight, this second round is beginning to get bloody for Caesar, even if he was able to keep his soldiers safe while they go about massacring women and children. In the actual boxing match, the second round is where Hagler, which, if you recall, was playing the role of Caesar in this fight, got a cut above his right eye. Drawing blood in boxing is more than a symbolic representation of boxing skill. It can actually lead to a disqualification, despite how well you may be boxing. So just like Caesar, Marvelous Marvin's best laid plans were beginning to unravel. So how bad did things get over this time for Caesar? So bad that he had to stop writing about what was happening altogether in his commentaries and instead turn it into some sort of travelogue, describing in depth the culture of the Gauls, the Germans, the Druids, even the flora and fauna of this incredibly wild corner of the world. Caesar had to change up his reports from the front because he was starting to lose the one thing that he had always been able to depend on. That was the support of the people. So he decided to fill their heads with distracting information to obscure the dirty deeds he was perpetrating in their name. For us, it is a great opportunity to find out some more about the world where the Gauls lived. Here is a breakdown from Caesar on the amazing animals he found in the forests of Gaul, as they are, quote, known to produce many species of wild animal never seen elsewhere. Because of their marked differences from other animals, the following may be recorded. There is a stag-shaped ox from whose forehead between the ears rises a single horn, taller and straighter than the horns we know. The tip divides into tines like hands and branches. Male and female are alike in shape and size of horn. Then there are the animals called elk. Their shape and piebald hides are like a goat's, but they are somewhat larger. Their horns are blunt and their legs have no knots or joints. They do not lie down to sleep and if they happen to be knocked down, cannot rise themselves to a standing position. Hunters who track them to their haunts loosen the roots of the trees or cut through them to have them seem to stand firm and then the elk leans against them as their habit, their weight brings the weakened trunk down and they collapse with it. The third species is the auroch. They are only a little bit smaller than elephants and have the appearance and color and shape of bulls. They are very strong and very swift and attack any man or beast they see. The natives are much concerned to trap these animals in pits and kill them. This kind of hunting trains the young men and hardens them. Those who have killed the most bring their horns to a public place as evidence and are applauded for their achievement. These animals cannot be domesticated or tamed, even if they are taken very young. Their size, conformation, and appearance of their horns are very different from those of our oxen. They are much sought after by the natives who fit their rims with silver and use them for goblets at their grandest feasts, unquote. Tell me that isn't a man wanting you to look the other way so you cannot see what his hand is doing. Now, in keeping with our boxing motif, Caesar definitely wanted this round to end, 
but it seemed like the clock was stopped. Despite his best efforts, or some would say because of them, there emerged a man, a leader of the Gauls, that went further to unite this proto-country of Gallic tribes into one imposing force of will than anyone before it. That man is named Vercingetorix, son of the king of the Averni, one of the largest and most powerful in all of Gaul. The man's name, as Camille Julian says, and I'm going to read his quote here with the actual punctuation the way it was written, because this guy really likes Vercingetorix. Quote, Vercingetorix! At this great and sonorous name, the soul of the Frenchman still leaps after 2,000 years. And in this name, which has echoed and will ever re-echo down the ages, was already resplendent as a standard, as a call to arms, it seemed to inspire terror. Vercingetorix was a young, ardent, rich, handsome, tall, and strong man. He had a numerous following. He is usually depicted with long, drooping mustaches. He was one of those men who it is an honor to meet, and whom nature seems to have achieved a masterpiece, not so rare as to be supposed, but whose rise to eminence is rare since neither man nor circumstances conspire to make their value felt. Their strength of character, form, and lofty convictions, fine generosity of spirit shine out all the more resplendent because those connected with their history, beginning with their illustrious foe, display a mediocre, shriveled spirit with a selfish outlook, unquote. <clears throat> Caesar, <clears throat> Caesar. Sorry, just clearing my throat there. So Julian loves Vercingetorix, and for good reason, too. Finally, there was a Gaul on the scene that would be able to grab most of the reins of this mishmash of tribal affiliations and turn it into a mostly united Gaul. But that would take time. First, Vercingetorix needed to convince the Gauls of one key thing as this second round was coming to an end. This was, for the first time, a sort of collective strategy that Vercingetorix needed his countrymen to follow, if they wanted any hope of defeating Caesar. He needed to convince them not to do the one thing they were all clamoring for, which was fight. For Vercingetorix was certain that Caesar and his legions would most certainly win a pitched battle at this point. What he needed most was time to bring together all of the tribes into one massive army that all the legions of Rome could not withstand. In order to do so, he needed his fellow Gauls to stop fighting, start running, and as they ran, leave absolutely nothing alive in their wake. In order to stop the Romans from taking Gaul, you had to make it as hard as possible for a Roman to exist in Gaul. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, most of the Gauls listened, and as the second round of this epic fight comes to a close, Caesar is hiding behind unicorns and drinking goblets, while Gaul, under the leadership of their new warrior king, have begun to lay the plans to destroy Caesar and rid themselves once and for all of the menace that is Rome. And so we get to the final act of this truly epic showdown between ancient titans. The laser-focused inevitability of Rome versus the unbridled power and passion of an almost united Gaul. Now history would be more likely to be singing a different tune had the word almost not been needed to describe Gaul. Because even a great leader of men such as Vercingetorix could not achieve a, a unity of thought and action. As historian Faustel de Coulange reminds us, quote, Vercingetorix did not have at his disposal the one prerequisite of all great leaders. He was not in command of a united nation. The divisions which exist in society are to be found in armies, and their counterpart in the heart of the soldier is indecision, 
lack of discipline, doubt, and distrust. In vain did Vercingetorix collect a large army, for however great his own energy, genius, and personal valor may have been, he seems never to have succeeded in endowing that army with the organization and cohesion necessary to face the Roman legions." Unquote. Now, this quote could be copied and pasted to describe most of the history of France. We are hearing about it for the first time here in this fight for survival against this, this foe, that even then, in the midst of the, an existential crisis, that the various tribes of the people called Gauls will never fulfill that promise and consider themselves worthy of one name to define them all. So starts the third and final round of this fight. At this point, there is a level of desperation on both sides, just like the match between Hagler and Hearns. In that fight from 1985, April 15th to be exact, so we are fast approaching its anniversary as I work on this episode, in that fight, both men felt the sense of urgency to finish. For Hearns, he was confounded by the tricky style that Hagler brought to the table. He felt that he couldn't win the fight on points alone, so he needed to do something that hadn't happened very often, that is knock Hagler down. Now, for Marvelous Marvin, the issue was actually more pressing. Hagler knew he couldn't outpunch the more powerful Hearns. He knew that the longer the fight went on, the less of a chance he would have of winning it. Also, the cut above his eye was not improving, and there was concern that the fight might be called on account of it. That is not too far off from where we find Vercingetorix and his Gauls playing the role of Tommy Hearns, knowing that they didn't have the skills to beat Caesar. They either have to starve him out or, like Hearns, attempt to knock him out. For Caesar, the calculus was simpler. He had no choice at this point other than landing his own haymaker and ending the fight once and for all. He was outnumbered, outsupplied, and he had lost his support back home in the city of Rome. So the stage is now set for a truly epic conclusion. The round, the final one, began well enough for the Gauls. They had decided, about 70% of the tribes, to get behind Vercingetorix and his scorched earth policy. They burned their own villages, food stores, and anything else that could provide aid to the enemy. Interesting enough, Caesar also imposed a similar strategy, and for most of 53 BC, the two armies spent much time burning Gaul to the ground. Now, if you trace their progress, neither one was making any real attempt to engage the other. Content on playing Sherman and treating Gaul like Georgia, they both bided their time until the time was right. At some point, this kooky dance of death ended in a fantastic battle, a textbook affair of siege warfare, both offensively and defensively. It was one of those battles that you sometimes see in team sport tournaments and playoffs, where the best game of the season is unfortunately not the one that is the championship game. So this fight is not the ultimate fight, this battle, but it is probably one of the most epic. This battle was for a city called Borges, the headquarters of the largest tribe in Gaul, the Betruges, who occupied the land smack dab in the middle of modern-day France. It seems that while the people of the Betruges were willing to burn their homes and farms, they were unwilling to sacrifice the city itself. This was truly one of the only places large enough population-wise in Gaul to even be considered a city, and it was doubly important to the Gauls as a center of spiritual significance. Now, Vercingetorix granted them their exception. Yes, you can keep your city. You don't have to burn it. But as soon as that news traveled through the grapevine and was related to Caesar, he stopped his pillaging and marched directly to Borges and laid siege to that city. 
It was an all-out, unrelenting, 24-hour-a-day struggle between the forces of unbridled passion and unrelenting discipline that lasted for 27 days. For almost four weeks, the soldiers on both sides of the battle sacrificed life and limb with little or no rest and almost no food. Franz Frank Brentano describes the battle, quote, The siege began harsh and exorable. The Romans constructed their siege towers with their leather revetings, and the besieged set fire to them. Clever at mining and foraging, the Ruggis multiplied their means of defense. They caught the siege hooks of which the Romans tried to undermine the ramparts and nets. They countermined the Roman mines. They met attacking towers with defense towers of their own. They passed on red-hot balls of pitch and metal containers from hand to hand. The last man in the chain, standing erect on the ramparts, would throw the burning shell onto the wooden buildings of the besiegers. But no sooner had he appeared and hurled the burning pitch than he was struck down by the Romans. It meant certain death, and yet not for one instant was that post allowed to remain empty." Unquote. Now the siege ended when a rainstorm of such ferocity eroded the defenses of the Gauls. It seems that even though they could seem to match the Romans in building towers, mines, and other machines of war, that the Gallic stuff was just not built as well. The torrential rain dissolved the mud, loosening the hemp ropes, and all but opened the front door for the starving and angry Romans. The city of Burgess burned. Everyone in the city was put to death. And Gaul appeared to be on the ropes. Vercingetorix had an army that was desperately trying to get to Borges in time but alas, did not. His hard-earned coalition took a major hit. Tribes began to jump ship, even though it was the Bertruges themselves who had begged for an exception. This loss was a traumatic one for the Gauls. It probably shouldn't have happened at all, but blew up the successful strategy of running and burning that had been frustrating Caesar and his legions. Now all that the Gauls had left in their tool belt was the ability to land that one punch, a punch they were most certainly capable of to the jaw of the Romans. Vercingetorix thought he had one chance left to win this war. Caesar was all in at this point, and what Vercingetorix was hoping for is what in boxing is called a puncher's chance. It means that though a fighter may be outclassed, it doesn't mean that his punch lacks power and can knock your ass out. So beware. Don't let that long hair and bare chest fool you. The Gauls, with this one last chance to throw a meaningful punch, must take that opportunity. So Vercingetorix sent out the message. He was going to lure Caesar to Alesia, a stronghold in Gaul like no other, a place where there was food and supplies enough to wait out the Romans. And in the meantime, while we occupy them, I need all of you, and I mean all of you, to gather arms and meet me at Alesia. I have 80,000 men. Caesar has 40,000. You can bring a million men. You be in Gaul. Bring Gaul to Caesar and I will meet you over his dead body. Which, I mean, I guess that, that's kind of what it sounded like. One has to wonder how informed Vercingetorix was concerning the overall situation of his rival. For Caesar at this point was probably just as desperate, maybe more so than the Gauls. If they had just kept burning and running, more than likely they would have won. But for Caesar, like the Gauls, he was fighting for his existential life. For if he was to lose Gaul, there would be no place for him. Rome would not only think poorly of him, but would most likely prosecute him for his war crimes. His army, once so loyal for so long, would have abandoned him. 
what was left of them. He would be a general without an army, a man without a country, just another defeated general that history records, but then quickly forgets. Now to draw again upon the boxing analogy, at this point in the third round back in 1985, the fight was actually stopped by the referee due to the amount of blood that was coursing out of Hagler's face. The fight was stopped and the ref, a guy named Richard Steele, asked the fight doctor to take a closer look at the cut. Now when the doctor asked if Hagler could see, Marvelous Marvin gave one of the best responses when he said, quote, I'm not missing him, am I? Unquote. As I mentioned earlier, this blood could have cost Hagler the fight, and he knew it. He said minutes after the fight was over, when asked about the stoppage, that he felt that they were looking for a reason to take the fight from him. Now remember, like any good New Englander, Marvelous adhered to the adage, just because you are paranoid, it doesn't mean they are not out to get you. The fight continued, but Hagler knew he was running out of time. The fight had to end soon. So he abandoned all of his craftiness and skill and came out after the stoppage like a man with everything to lose. And that is how the final battle of the Gallic War went down. Vercingetorix retreated his 80,000 Gauls behind the mountain walls of Elysia and awaited the united Gaul to rise up and save its favorite son and deal their mortal enemy a killing blow. Now when Caesar got there, he found Vercingetorix shut up in the mountain and he shrugged his shoulders and did what he always did in these cases. He built something. He decided to build a siege wall around the mountain that was 15 or so feet high and 13 miles long. It had stakes, pitch pits, sentry towers, and mounted artillery. Being savvy to what Vercingetorix was hoping would happen, Caesar knew that he had to protect his back as well from the army that was certain to come. So he and his legions built another wall, this time almost 21 miles in circumference around the first wall, creating this sort of no man's land that they could defend while moving around it like a racetrack. And all that was left to do is wait. The Romans began to run out of food, but ever resolute, they would subsist of baking loaves of mud and roots, sometimes even sending some of those loaves to the Gauls holed up in Elysia with a note letting them know that they weren't going anywhere. Now the waiting finally ended when the United Army arrived on the scene. But to the disappointment of the French people to this day, this was in no means a truly unified nation's army. Hoping for a million men, Vercingetorix was only able to see about a quarter of that from atop of his mountain stronghold. 250,000 men, far short from the one million he expected, but hopefully it would be enough. As the Romans were sandwiched between two Gallic armies, and if there was ever a time to fight balls out, now was that time. This would be a battle that would stretch both sides to their breaking point. It was coming up to the moment when all would be lost and all would be won. But by who? Now let's allow Caesar, whose account is the only account we have based on the actual events and being present at them. This is the moment, the one he's about to describe, when all of Gaul, possibly all of Rome, and the whole of Western history hung in the balance. The Gauls were surrounding Elysia, swarming the defenses of Rome, hundreds of thousands of Gallic warriors pressing in from all sides. At one point, the Gauls find a weak point in that wall and begin to pour into it and face the Romans face to face. And Caesar knows this is the moment. He writes, quote, Caesar found a vantage point from which to observe the action in all quarters and sent supports where they were needed. Both sides realized that this was the moment for supreme effort. The Gauls had nothing to hope for if they could not break our defenses and the Romans looked forward to an end of all their troubles if they held their ground. The most critical situation was in the upper entrenchments 
where it was noted the Gauls had launched their main attack. Here, the downward slope was a weighty factor. Some of the enemy discharged missiles. Some moved closer in, utilizing a tortoise formation, and fresh men took the place of the wearied. All hands plied earth over the entrenchment, and this enabled the Gauls to ascend the wall and cover the traps which the Romans had hidden in the ground. Soon our men were both short of weapons and energy. Finally, as the fighting grew fiercest, Caesar himself brought fresh reinforcements up. The color of the cloak in which Caesar habitually wore in battle apprised the enemy of his approach from the higher ground. They could see in the depression squadrons of cavalry and cohorts of infantry with which he had ordered to follow him. The enemy joined in battle and the shout was raised on either side as taken up on the ramparts the whole line of defense. Our men dropped their javelins and plied their swords. Unquote. Caesar had seen the end game, and he himself led the charge directly into the teeth of the enemy. If he succeeded, it spelled the end of the Gauls. If he were to fall, it would spell the end of the Romans. Winner takes all. Just like the Hagler-Hearns showdown, both opponents knew this was the time. And the knockout punch was landed by Caesar. That is how the fight ended. The final battle was not decisive because of a lot of people died, which they did and it was not for the reason that Vercingetorix surrendered himself to Caesar. It was because this was a referendum of where Gaul was right now as a country. They couldn't be roused to fight as one people to save the best of them in Vercingetorix and to retain the very thing that makes them, well, them, their Gallicness, if you will. Well, if they can't do that, then they will never be able to be united. And no need for more people to die just to prove that point. And by and large, Gaul is finished as an adversary for Caesar in Rome. It seems that after the surrender of Vercingetorix at the Battle of Alesia, it seems that after the surrender of Vercingetorix, Caesar started a new tact. Things were really heating up for him in Rome, so he knows he has to get back there soon, and he can waste no more time. As a postscript to his atrocious behavior, it appears at this point adopts a carrot and a big fucking stick approach. He offers clemency to any tribe and region of Gaul willing to capitulate to him and Rome. The carrot is munched on by a lot of people in Gaul, mostly the upper crust of their society. The nobles and leaders of the remaining tribes are not stupid, and they see no choice but to Latinize. Now, the less fortunate, the ones living in small towns, the working class, the serfs, were another story. In many ways, a change to Roman rule meant little to them. They were put on this earth to produce for the ruling class, regardless of who that was. Life continued as it always had, their men being asked to fight in wars that were not their fight, and their women being sold into slavery to ensure the remainder of their family can eat. Now, for some of these classes, both the rich and the poor, losing to the Romans was not something that they were willing to accept. And throughout Gaul, there were small uprisings and altercations, and that is, until Caesar began to wield his big-ass stick I mentioned a minute ago. If you intent any outward display of rebelliousness in any way against Rome, you would be subject to having your right hand amputated. Then it would be tied to your body and you would have to carry it around with you as a reminder of your treason. And in most cases, you were also forbid fire or water. So no cooked food or clean water to drink. Now, most people died of gangrene, but many would wander the countryside as reminders of Caesar's cruelty. This cruelty would produce one of the most hilarious opinions I've come across in a serious book of history. It comes, of course, from Franz Funk. 
one never to shun away from bold statements, and he feels strongly about Caesar. Here he is comparing Vercingetorix to Caesar, the former's greatness compared to the latter's, quote, feudal ambitions and harsh pride, the bald-headed Caesar, the wan proconsul, whose wrinkled features bore the traces of knights of sensuality, whose heart was withered up with debauchery and excited by the ghastly pre-Neronian dilettantism, which made him rejoice in the hideous task of bloodshed and rapine, and in the morbid pleasure of blasting and trampling underfoot human destinies, just as the Roman plebes, his beloved fellow citizens, who he flattered and whose suffrages he craved, delighted in seeing the red blood flow on the white sand of the arena." Unquote. Well, for his part, this is how Caesar put it at the end of major hostilities. Quote, the wars in Gaul had lasted almost 10 years. Caesar had taken by assault 800 fortresses and subjugated 300 tribes. He fought against 3 million of the enemy, leaving a million dead and taking a million prisoners. Unquote. Vercingetorix would remain alive for eight more years, rotting in a Roman jail, awaiting Julius Caesar to get his triumph for beating the Gauls. And on that day, Vercingetorix will be strangled to death after being paraded through Rome in the triumph, the conquered king of the Gauls. Now, for his part, Caesar wouldn't last much longer, being assassinated on the Senate floor just a couple of months later. But it really didn't matter at this point, for both Gaul and Rome had already been set on the path that they would travel for the next 600 years or so. Gaul subjugated, Rome imperious. When it is all said and done, a couple of decades later, the Roman emperor Claudius would be able to brag that he could hold on to Gaul with as little as 1,200 men. He would go on to say this about Gaul and its people, quote, never since she was conquered by the divine Julian has Gaul wavered in her allegiance. Never in the most critical of circumstances has her attachment ever broken, unquote. Gaul was truly and deeply just another part of Rome, abandoned, left for dead, just like our tasty little Frenchman, Évariste Galois. Unlike our main man, however, France was not actually dead. The names, places, customs that are the France Galois will grow to love has been established. But so too is the fractious nature of their culture, what is called the estates, the first being monarchy, the third being peasants. As Camille Julian breaks down for us, quote, But let us consider the state of Gaul. We have seen how important peoples like the Reme and the Lingones and towns like Poitiers, who were the first devoted to the cause of Rome. Then the Edui, the most powerful people in Gaul, were on Rome's side. Moreover, we must not regard this as the chief reason for the Romanization of Gaul. For it is abundantly clear that the differences between the Celta-Ligurian civilization and Roman civilization were not as great as might be supposed. A thousand years previous, the Celts and Italians had spoken the same language. That this ancient bond, not only with Italy but with Greece, had left strong traces in the constitution of the family, in the structure of society, and in religion. The Romans of the first century represented a civilization more advanced in many particulars than the civilization of Gaul, but they fitted into each other. There is, however, even more important consideration. We have seen how in all the states of Gaul, even among Vercingetorix's tribe, the Averni, the rich, the noble, the patricians were on the side of Rome. Now the triumph of Rome had made the patricite all-powerful. Not only did it at once resume its direction of affairs, but from the very fact that it was patricite, the cultivated class, 
it exercised a preponderating influence over the manners and customs and everything which constituted the life of the nation of Gaul. Even before the conquest, the sympathies of the patrician Gauls were directed towards Rome, and they willingly became Rome and as the Caesars heaped favors upon them and flattered their vanity, unquote. And that is how we start to get what is called in Galois' time the first estate, the part of French society made up of the upper crust, the royalty. This solidifying of this class in Gaul in the wake of the Gallic War would ossify into the decadent and rotten edifice of class that would one day inform the peasants of Paris they could just go on and eat cake. The class of people that Everest at Galois would don loaded pistols, uniform, and sword to announce his intentions against. That class, it starts here. The first estate of France has been set. Another main estate of France is also defined at this point, that of the third estate, the peasants, serfs, workers, farmers of France. Before the war, almost all Gauls lived like serfs. It was like all of Gaul was just one estate. After the war, there were two. The first and the third. So what about the second? Well, Camille Julien answers that question as well. Quote, Religion, in spite of the similarities we have just mentioned, might have proved an obstacle to Romanization of Gaul. But as we have seen, the religion of the Gauls, the Druids, was a religion of caste, of the patrician caste. And in fact, the patricians became Roman, unquote. So the world of Gaul is coming into greater focus. We have the royal class who will become the royalists of the revolution of 1789. And we have the working class who will become the republicans like Evariste. The first estate and the third estate of France have now been firmly established. So what about the second estate, that religion, you know, the clergy? That, as they say, is a story for the next episode. For now, as we wind up our supersized episode, I'd like to leave you with a couple of quotes that I think best sums up the Frenchness, if you will, of where Gaul finds itself now that Caesar and the Romans have conquered it. I think these two thoughts perfectly encapsulate the dual nature of the French soul that at once is full of national pride and is at the same time scratching its proverbial head, wondering just how things ended up this way. First, from our old friend Franz Funky Stuff. Quote, the centuries of Roman rule were for Gaul a period of lethargy. She was beaten down to the ground, but the germs of life were still in her, sleeping like seeds in the field under winter snows. And after centuries of disfigurement, the old Celtic and Ligurian stocks appeared once more. They had been exploited by Romans and then by Germans, but nothing could destroy their traditions and their customs. Closely bound to the land, the Gallic peoples persevere with their life and habits intact. And from the day it was able to move freely, it produced, with all its magnificence, with which we are familiar, the incomparable history of France, unquote. And in response, we hear from Camille Julian. He says, quote, to this day, I cannot understand how Gaul allowed itself to be conquered by Rome, and even worse, how it consented to remain a Roman province. But that is our history, our burden, our France.